you just heard the intro and absorbed from Corner's Punishment for Decadence album from 1988. This is the International Thrash series Corner and Swiss Thrash Part 1. Swiss Thrash Part 1. I'm Mark. Part 1. Indeed. That's a that's a definitely a little bit of a linguistic uh, hurdle there to Swiss and Yeah, it's a, that little part that you kind of got going on. So <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's not just coroner, although a lot of it will be coroner, but yeah, we're sneaking in a little context as we as we're known to do. I think we're like almost uh, at this point known as a, a context machine. That's kind of how we're our operating system, you know, nothing but context. So yes. But yeah, so welcome. Uh, it's been it's been a hot minute since Mark and I have kind of recorded. We've uh, actually been we've met up in person uh, since you moved in between the deceased episode and this. Um, over yeah, you the, finally came out and saw the uh, the new Requiem North headquarters. You, yeah. yeah, you got to. Uh, we reversed our position, our polarities of studios. The full the full yeah the full tour and stuff, and got to see your new studio that you'll be uh, using. You know, and and your makeshift studio with like the blanket forts and, and basically that is now uh, a thing of the past. It was, yeah, it? moving moving blankets and a propane heater. Now I'm using a mini split. And I'm uh, perfectly happy. I've got slippers on in my office. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's good. That's like a, that means you're like Mister Mister Rogers or something. You got your slippers. You're relaxed. You got your. I do have to change my shoes as I come in and out of my office. Exactly. You got your vibes going on. So, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. So the the internet the thrash series keeps on rolling. Took a break with deceased. Um, you know, hopefully we got a lot of good feedback about that. We'll we'll share that at the end of the episode. Uh, some of the things that we heard back on some things and um, what uh, if you're just sort of joining us or stumbling on us here because maybe you're a fan of Coroner and decided to check us out. Um, we do long form storytelling. You know, these are uh, you know episodes for what, ice road truckers and long long range truckers and all kinds of people that want long episodes whether you want them or not dudes in their 40s who like to do a lot of yard work (laughs) that's it man yeah you know house lots of housework put these on headphones and and get kind of lost for for a couple hours listening to some chunks and stuff but we did decide to break this up into two probably you know lesson lesson a little bit um i had somebody when i posted this they're like is it gonna be 32 hours long and i was like uh no (laughs) i said uh I said it's going to be broke up into two parts, and then I think I, I can't remember if it was Seth or somebody. Uh, Seth Forsman was like, "Oh, okay, so two sixteen-hour uh, episodes. <laughs> you got it, baby. You got it." So, um, but yeah, so we're looking at a pretty unique scene here, and it's it's pretty insulated in a lot of ways. It's not as expansive as some of the other international sort of uh, geographic regions that we've sort of looked at. Um, Switzerland's. You know, one of the questions like that Tom G will bring up and, and Max uh, Cavalera will have a soundbite from him a little bit later. It's just this idea of what makes kind of Switzerland sort of unique. And one of the things that I've kind of arrived at in my thinking and having lived in Europe and traveled to Switzerland a few times is it's it's a country that's kind of a lot in the mountains. It's kind of cut off from a lot of the rest of Europe. And yet it's also a weird tri-cultural crossroads where half of the or one third of the country is sort of german speaking one third is like french and one third is italian speaking and i think that speaks to like the weirdness of the swiss scene you know when you start to throw together your celtic frosts and coroners and even like uh the kind of industrial sort of band in the uh, 80s and 90s the young gods and um 
Yeah. They're just, they don't really, I don't know. They don't really fit anywhere and that's kind of perfect. And that's what makes it sort of a niche kind of thing. And I think, you know, one of the things I kind of arrived at um, too, and I think it might've been in a a documentary clip that I, I saw on coroner where they kind of talked about how the fact that it was really tough for any band to make it out of Switzerland because there just wasn't like a music scene that was that big. And there wasn't a lot of like, um, promotion or or sort of momentum but if you could make it out of switzerland there was much more of a spotlight on you you know whereas like somebody made the argument like if corner had been an american band would they have i I mean i still think they would have stood out a little bit but they there was like a dime a dozen of thrash bands there but there was only like two thrash bands in switzerland so if you made it everyone is so you know when you say swiss metal you think of like Celtic Frost Corner and like Samale, you know, or something like that. You know, like it's yeah, very, basically limited, it. you know, I mean, you got Crocus and we'll talk about them and then some of that, but that's, you know, basically ACDC type, you know, like. Well, Crocus might be the biggest rock and roll band out of Switzerland. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And kind of paved the way for, for some of those, those yeah. other bands. I mean, they had cool covers, a cool name. And then when yeah. you heard them, you're like, hmm. Hey, I love Screaming of the Night, but yeah, it's basically <laughs> ACDC, you know, it's like, you know, ACDC ripoff type stuff, but yeah, um, yeah so it's, it, it is kind of interesting. And, you know, with, with Coroner, who will be kind of the focal point in the second half of this episode, and then pretty much part two as well, um, you know, a song like Absorb that kicks off the Punishment for Decadence album, which was their second full length record from 88, you get kind of all the key elements there in a song like that, you know, um, you know, it kind of makes them probably the, the you know, I, I would say Coroner's the greatest kind of pure thrash band out of Switzerland. You know, I mean, Celtic Frost is more important, but they were never like pure thrash, you know, but like Coroner, at least in the beginnings, is is kind of for all intents and purposes in the thrash camp, you know. Like thrash speed metal. I think that yeah. early yeah. definitely like the, the lot of speed metal traits going on. I think that uh Frost and Hellhammer, I think we're so like um singular yeah that they didn't really fit into any scene they they happened to be around the same time as like you know thrash stuff was kicking off but i think there's so much more um going on there and definitely the corner like the the whole i mean i guess you know uh switzerland and like neoclassical classical music this kind of erudite music makes its way Mm -hmm. really quickly into corner in a way that celtic frost maybe in like broad strokes did once in a while, but not as like these concentrated, like Yingve Malmsteen, Randy Rhodes, the little neoclassical bits that make it into the, like, it seems very, very European thrash. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and even like, I've, I've seen some clips with Martin Ayn and, and Tom G talking about corner and they're like on their first record, they were better musicians than we ever were. And we knew that. And, and yeah. that's fine. They're not, that doesn't mean they're a better band. It just means like they just outclassed everybody in terms of their ability and stuff, you know, right from like, right from the opening, you know, moments and stuff. And I don't think they did on songwriting, but as far as just pure, you know, musical musicianship. Sure. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. You know, so, I mean, you get in a song like absorb all the elements that you'll hear later with corner, you know, speed, aggression, you get some groove. There's some mm-hmm. definite stop-start kind of rhythmic propulsion. Uh, I think what Coroner does so well that other bands of this ilk didn't do is they have technicality without losing their soul. Like they're still like uh, they're not cold. You know, they might be technical, but they always like 
are serving the song for the most part. It's not like masturbatory stuff that that well, some they did. Uh, they did what Rush that. did, you know. Yes, yes. They and, were able uh, to be incredibly complicated, you know, playing complicated, you know, rhythms and all this and that. But it never sac. They never like sacrificed the song. They're always about the songs, the hooks, the melody lines. Like, yep, they're emotive, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they're experimental without pretentiousness. And that's like, again, Rush, like, how do you, you know, that's such a threading of the needle to pull off there. Because so many bands have, uh, you know, they they come off cold or or something like that, you know. That or just you're just like, cold. you don't ever, you don't remember, like, you hear a record and you're like, what, uh, I can't pick out a song. Yeah, it's like, it's all good. <laughs> it's all well played, but like, it lacks any identity. Yep, yeah. yep. I think that's the other thing I will say about Coroner that um, in going into to doing this, that sort of surprised me is they they do write pretty good songs and they have hooks and they have some things there. Not everything, but but like, you know, their they their songwriting chops, especially when you get to like mental vortex and some of that stuff, like they really kind of know what they're doing at that point. And um, yeah. And I mean, you can even hear like, you know, like at the 215 mark of Absorb. And again, this record's in 88 you can kind of hear to me where it's kind of predictive of like where like a band like death would, would take like stuff with human, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's kind of that type of like approach is there and humans like a great tech death record that still has like a soul to it, you know, and some tech death really doesn't have that, you know, and and it's such a fine line that, you know, if you're going to do technical things, technical thrash, you know, prog rock, whatever, like, you know, the temptation to just over noodle and overdo it is always there. And, and if you're a memorable band, you resist that temptation and, and stay like in the songwriting pocket of like, let's write a good song first as well as be technical, you know? And, and I think that's yeah. something Coroner does a pretty good job of that. that well, I think sort of... they're kind of like a, a rhythmic spiritual, you know, progenitor of Meshuggah. Yes. Yes. Because they really lock in the groove and then, the thing like that's what i think that's what creates the catchiness more so than a lot of times the solos um the solos are kind of like almost this dressing on top of it you know it's not necessarily the thing that that grabs your attention it's the thing that kind of like weaves you through the rhythmic you know kind of thing they've got going on and then the lyrics usually always kind of very similar i'll have to say very similar like what to what tom g always did in celtic frost was the vocal line never followed the bass the drum the guitar it was always its own thing that kind of added more you know texture to the song and i think they definitely uh kind of pulled in a lot of that what's funny is you saying what you said to to open that comment is fascinating um for people that are diehard corner fans that are kind of tuning in this episode we obviously won't get to the you know grin episode um in part one but mark by his own admission hasn't really spent time with that record and i'm curious what you think F about your Mashuga comment after you dive into that record. That's all I'll say. Okay. So it's it's kind of cool. It's it's like foreshadowing for your own experience that you're going to be going on before we record part two, you know. Mm-hmm. So but um yeah, you know, basically, you know, uh we appreciate your patience. Uh people that have been, you know, we've been dropping these big episodes, but almost kind of a singular episode uh per month rather than every two weeks. But maybe we'll kind of get back into shorter episodes, but released every couple of weeks. We gotta get through the holidays. You're about to have a kid. There's a lot of shit that's like coming down the pipeline and we have no idea like how this is gonna happen. So we'll yeah, we'll do as much as we can and uh we yeah. appreciate your patience. 
that's it. You know, if you're a fan of like, you know, shorter, more frequent episodes, uh, we, you know, again, we're doing our best. But like I always tell people, just fucking hit pause. You know, like that's the beauty of podcasts is like it stops and it remembers right where I pick up when I get back in the car, or, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know how other people listen to podcasts, but if you're not doing it that way, then I don't know. You find an app that does that for you. How about that? That's my best. I, piece I, would, of I would think most of them do, but like, you know, yeah. I have no problem listening to like a three hour conversation about the most mundane, not mundane, but the most like technical aspects yeah. of a certain thing I really care about uh, and just pick right back up. Um, yep. But, you know, everybody's got different listening habits. I get sure. it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want something that's like digestible, I get that there's a lot that release like an episode every week that's like an hour and 20 minutes. And that's like their their forte. And that's great. But that's really what you're getting from us. You're getting six hours every four weeks. So you're getting the same yeah. thing. You know, well, a lot minutes. of these other podcasts have producers and they have larger infrastructure behind them putting these things together our, our if we were just the talent that came on and like talked that yes. would be we could knock stuff out quicker but holy shit we would fucking murder things if we had research assistants and uh yeah people that would do know, all people the to edit for us yeah holy shit yeah. <laughs> uh you know all the different like things that like i end up scrubbing and doing timestamps for and you as yeah. well it's like if somebody else did that I'd be like fuck that'd be great you know so well, i think give it uh you know maybe 12 years and my uh, my son might be able to help there you go let's put that kid to work so Man, family business <laughs> yeah there you go the legacy lives on but um, yeah, so it's going to be like I said, Switzerland focused uh, with def or Switzerland, but the focus will definitely be on Coroner. Um, we we're going to be bringing in uh, some some different sort of sound bites. We've got Tom G. Warrior, uh, who some of you might be familiar with from a band called Celtic Frost and uh, Hellhammer, and also Trypticon. Um, I would say one of the most important figures in extreme metal that's ever existed. Yeah, yeah, you might be aware of him. If you're listening to Requiem Metal Podcast (laughs) and you're kind of new to Tom G. Warrior, boy, are you in for a treat. Uh, You've got a lot of ground to go back through. Um, And we will be talking about Celtic Frost because you have to. But, you know, when I was doing show notes for when we get to the Frost section, I was almost like, look, we don't really need to talk about Celtic Frost because it's almost like a disservice if we try and like half-ass talk about them. Because yep. like we've already done a whole episode on them, and they probably deserve another episode of their own down the road or something. So, I think some album spotlights for sure. Yeah, if you know, if you want the the history of Celtic Frost beyond what we go into, there's plenty of stuff that will do that. But that's not what this is about. We're just Pick up, talking uh, only death is real from uh, bazillion points. Yep, yep. That or the Are You Morbid uh, book, if you can find that, you know, somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. uh yeah, so we've got Tom. Uh, we I had an opportunity to talk to Tom actually about a year ago. It was it was actually Thanksgiving uh, of last year when I was down in North Carolina at Chris's. Um, it's crazy how that long ago for the Venom episode. <laughs> I I kind of knew that down the road we'd be doing this episode, so I asked him a little bit about kind of Swiss and the Swiss scene and, and things like that. So it's kind of we will be using some of that. It's pretty cool. And then uh, also we brought in Joseph Schaefer, and um, a lot of you know who Joseph Schaefer is from. His uh, Discordance Access episode he did with us and his um, uh, Tribulation episode, and he's been on some other things that we've done. He's a Decibel writer, along with Mark and Chris, uh, as being part of the Decibel family and Albert and all the other Decibel people we've had on through the years. Um, But he also organizes the Northwest Terror Festival that uh, is out in Seattle, uh, the big metal festival. And he's the lead singer and one of the primary songwriters for a cool kind of thrash uh, 
you know, band called Colony Drop. So, and one of their main inspirations is Coroner. So it's kind of one of the reasons I reached out to him because he's about the biggest Coroner fan I've I've met. And so I was like, look, Joe will probably have some cool perspective beyond what Mark and I will have to say because we're we're novices when it comes to Coroner. I mean, we've listened to him for the last couple decades for sure, but we, I don't think either of us ever went like way way deep into the rabbit hole on them. So I wanted to bring no, in something that that um you know, definitely has like been near and dear to them. And uh, so that's, that's cool. So those would be kind of sprinkled through as well. Um, but I guess the thing to say about the the Swiss scene is we try and, you know, kind of set some of this stuff up is there was never really a, ever a unified Swiss, Swiss scene. I mean, Tom G will talk, I think in one of the sound bites coming up about how they were taking a lot of their cues from what they were seeing across the border in Germany, obviously. And that's mm-hmm. pretty, you know, pretty, pretty obvious with you know the influence of the destruction and sodoms and 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 creators and those type of bands um you know i guess the most unified aspect would probably be the the linkage between coroner and celtic frost that we'll be getting into um you know they were essentially mentored in a lot of ways by tom and he mm-hmm. did a lot to sort of get them going in their careers and we'll get into that a little bit later in the episode um but you know beyond the german thrash scene they're they're taking their cues from you know, what's happening in America with, you know, especially Megadeth and Metallica. Um, I would say this, and this is why I'm kind of curious what, what your thoughts are and, and we can get into a little bit deeper, but one of the touchstone bands that like kind of came across for me in my journey and in kind of looking into the, the coroner stuff is I really thought about like the first like three or four Megadeth records. Like I can see that. Those I mean, are I always thought Megadeth was was very influenced by German Yes. Metal. And I think they were. And I also think that they take a very tech approach and a very weird songwriting approach, especially on killing and um, on peace cells. Yeah. And, and I know you have had struggles at times with Megadeth, but you've kind of more, you know, kind of come around in, in, in the last couple of years and kind of appreciated all of the records, not just a couple of them here and there. Not all, but all uh, of yeah, them. I would say up till Rust in Peace. Yeah, including rest in peace. Yeah, all of their '80s run. How about that? Yeah, the, the kind of quintessential stuff, the core stuff. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I think you always struggled maybe with like how the kind of I, I don't want to speak for you, but it, it seemed that you had trouble with the structure of how Dave would sometimes arrange a lot of the songs, and it was a lot of ideas, and he was kind of doing weird choices, and um, it was kind. Of, I mean, I was thought it was kind of scattershot. Yeah, where you'd have some stuff that was, I mean, because Metallica records. They're smooth. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. and most most uh, you know con- con- contemporary stuff you know not included in that. Um, they always felt cohesive. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and mega early mega the stuff felt all over the place. It felt like he was trying to like really push himself in a lot of different directions. But as far as you know, I, I give him props for coming up with Vic Rattlehead having like a mascot. But that's the that's like the unifying thing in a lot of those albums for me. It's like a lot of the songs are all over the place. Yep. And I think Corner has a little bit of that. I actually think they're more unified than some of the early Megadeth uh, in terms I of like. I totally think so. Record. Yeah. But, but I, I think, think they're so. they're both totally uh, hooked into that. Um, you know, for lack of neoclassical is a very broad term, but the very influenced by classical musical tech ideas, I would say. But I don't think you're wrong in saying that because that's the actual words that Tommy from Corner uses he's like yeah we kind of wanted to merge thrash and neoclassical so i think you're spot on with that okay well and metallic or in uh, megadeth as well i think dave is definitely trying to grab he was always trying to make up for not being in metallica yep yep he's kind of he was 
the most ferocious member of, of Metallica as far as, you know, the, the early era, I think, too. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So definitely when we get into the early coroner, you know, I'll, I'll kind of talk about some connections that I hear with the Megadeth stuff and in, in here and there. But um, I guess if you're starting the story, um, you know, within Switzerland in the in the metal scene, you know, you've got Crocus, you know, they were kind of the breakthrough sort of Swiss hard rock band, I suppose, you know, especially when Screaming the Night hit. Uh, I think that was 83 when that sort of album hit. Um, but otherwise, there weren't really a lot of thrash bands outside of Frost and Coroner, but uh, I wanted to just kind of in this first set talk about a, a handful that were sort of floating around just to give them a little brief kind of spotlight. Um, and one of the bands was a band called Carrion, um, who released a, a record in 86 called Evil Is There uh, with an exclamation uh, point um, before they actually changed their name to Poltergeist. So they're essentially the same band, just kind of two two sides of the same coin. Um Lots of influences, like I said, being pulled from you know German bands, especially Destruction, uh, Iron Angel, those kind of uh, German thrash kind of stuff. And the band would even uh, attend some Destruction rehearsals and befriend them to the point where Carrion's vocalist, this guy named uh, Vio Pulver, ends up singing and guesting on some Destruction records a, a little bit later. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of interesting connection between those kind of two bands. Um, you know, it's decently heavy in the, the sort of great thrash year of 86. Um and a source we've turned to uh, often through this international thrash series has been the Worship Metal uh, sort of series that um, Chris Jennings did. Uh, and this one's from September of 2021, and it's called 10 Obscure Old, Th Old School Thrash Albums You Need to Hear Part 4. And he did a little write-up on, on this Carrion Evil is There thing, and it's very brief, but he basically said... Uh, the perfect encapsulation of underground thrash in 1986, Swiss Thrashers Carrion, you might know them better as Poltergeist, released just one album before changing their name to the titular Spectral House Wrecker. Noticeably less technical than the output of Poltergeist, Evil is There is a bare-bones thrash release with any fresh, fat picked clean to leave a pure, straightforward, and relentless experience. Brutally simplistic and simply, uh, brutally simplistic and simply brutal, Carrion could still showcase a little melody from time to time. Check out the intro to The Avenger, but it's the lightning quick riffing found on the likes of Demon's Child that retains its edge. And so, um, you know, I, you probably only listened to the, the one song, Demon's Child, here. I, I don't imagine you kind of ventured uh, too far out, but I, I listened to the whole record and it's pretty fun. It, it's not essential, you know, but. Um, yeah, I listened to a couple tracks. It's just a. But another thrash band in 86 doing a pretty decent kind of german thrash kind of thing but it, nothing that really kind of stands out i would say you know no i mean pulling a lot from you know new album i think as well like yeah. a lot of early yep. early maiden vibes mixed with you know the more raw you know vocal delivery and but also like just goofy like the uh hey boy it's time to break the chains <laughs> like yeah, there's yeah. a lot of really kind of goofy like disparate thing like a lot of different things that don't necessarily think like they'd go together like vocally but well even like the in the demon's child song we're going to hear in a second uh the bursts of like crazy drums that are sort of sprinkled throughout it's like kind of unhinged at times like what the yeah. fuck were they thinking but kind of gives it charm in that weird way you know yeah like i mean like, like a lot of the like the speed of new album is kind of what got that like got people excited about that and this is just like you know pushing all that stuff a little bit further from you know whatever they're listening to but there's definitely that kind of you know that maiden driving kind of propulsion yeah yeah and you hear a little bit of that like in certainly like german speed metal those early halloweens and blind guardians oh, kind of totally like off the rails drumming that's like what <laughs> what are they doing yeah 
Yeah, um, you take Clive Burr drumming and put double bass and double the speed. Yeah, it's so fucking weird, you know. <laughs> um, and so you know they kind of move from that uh, kind of primitive sort of stuff that you'll hear in Demon's Child to a couple of years later they reform uh, and change the name to Poltergeist and they put out uh, their debut is called Depression and that features a new vocalist and a guy named Andre Greeter um, and he sings a little bit more clean than than Pulver I mean but they're both mm-hmm. fairly clean. Um, there's more intricate leads. Pulver is uh, also the guitar player. So he was the guy that sang and carry on, but he's the lead guitar player in Poltergeist. And he's doing like more note bursts and intricate leads and, and things like that. Um, you know, it's interesting too, that Andre Greeter also will sing uh, guest sing for some destruction albums in the nineties as well. So hmm. they, they're, they're really locked in and befriending them. And in fact, the band was so attached to Germany that they actually just relocated to Frankfurt in like the, around the time that they put out depression. So it's fair to say they're they're barely a Swiss thrash band. I mean, I guess they are at the point that they're carrying, but once they become poltergeist, I think they just kind of just like get locked into the German scene, you know? I mean, Switzerland, Austria, Germany's all kind of lumped together in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think they, they share a lot of cultural heritage and stuff as well. It's just like different, you know, parts, but um but they, they definitely all have their own unique vibes for sure yeah the thing i noticed in poltergeist that was kind of cool the shooting stars the tune we're going to hear from it but um i had some kind of like you know really cool breakdowns that pulver's doing on guitar and some like punchy kind of catchy almost like sacred reich kind of uh stuff you know yeah, i was very american sounding more yeah. so than what they were doing with carrion yeah, so it's it's pretty fun. You know, I love what Graf, the bassist, uh, he's doing some cool things at moments on the song. You know, mm-hmm. uh, adds some cool layers, and then uh, the harmonics yeah. and chugs and yeah, yeah, and Jazzy's drums, uh, uh they kind of complement the sort of double time awesome breakdowns. There's a cool breakdown at like three twenty mark, and what's really interesting about Jazzy, the guy who's drumming in Poltergeist, Mark, is he also drums in the other kind of minor thrash kind of proto death band that we're going to glance at messiah so he's well, in also both the bands. guitarist the poltergeist in 2023 goes on to play in messiah <laughs> was he really no shit that's yeah. crazy it's I a lot of that. like uh intertwined stuff yeah. yeah so again very small scene this is you know like i mean celtic frost and corner kind of attached at the hip in the beginning and, and carrying a poltergeist are essentially kind of the same band and messiah is drawn from a little bit so it's it's very incestuous and small you know which um that's why you don't get a lot from switzerland i don't think there's like a huge metal scene there but if those that are like intensely passionate about it probably insulate it you know well i wonder um, what even the population is of switzerland well, I'm trying to think. I've I've been to Lucerne uh, a few times and a few other places, but I I haven't been to the capital city to burn. Um, but I don't. When you look at like bands, you know, doing their European tours, Switzerland's not usually on there. Yeah, I can't they'll, they'll hit Germany like two three times and not hit Austria. Or... They probably hit Vienna, I imagine, but they they're, they're going to okay. hit Vienna and Austria because that's like a that's over a million people, I think. But I don't know if they'll. Yeah, I think Lucerne or I don't know what Geneva's like scene is like. Probably not super huge. And, uh, <laughs> they're into, kind of they're more cool. into conventions than concerts. Yeah, I was going to say they're more into like uh, peace treaties and shit. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't I didn't ask Tom about that. You know, I should have like, you know, he basically said there was it was really non-existent, especially when he was coming up. It was just like you just did things on your own, you know, or they like I said, took their cues from what Germany was kind of doing. So yeah. Um but Messiah is pretty fascinating. They're they're a weird band and their three album run from 86 to 91, which is really all we're looking at, but they they do kind of continue on into you know, some stop starts into even modern times. I think their last record was like 2020 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but the first two albums in particular, which were put out on this kind of underground label called Chainsaw Murder Records, which is pre- pretty awesome name. Um, <laughs> Definitely. It, you're kind of going to be underground if that's your, your yeah. name, I think. But but him to, to Abe, Abe, uh, Abe Mellon, is how you pronounce it, Abe Mellon. I don't know. And then Extreme Cold Weather, uh, 86 and 87 are these first two <laughs> records. Um, that cover, man. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, let's We'll talk about that cover in a moment. But... Um, I, you know, it really gave me vibes, these two records, especially him, of what was sort of happening in Brazil at this time. You know, some of the the like proto-death stuff that was happening from Sarcophago or Volcano or uh, early Sepultura type stuff. It's real primitive. Um, yeah. You know. But I would say, yeah, same as uh, like Tormentor. Yeah, definitely. Like Just one of those off-kilter things. Like I hear a lot, especially in like you know because i have these records i actually picked them up quite a few years ago um hell's headbangers reissued them um i don't know if they did that on vinyl too i imagine and then i picked up choir of horrors also that uh, noise put out um back in the day and um i hear a lot of like not just proto death but even like stuff that i gotta imagine like black metal bands like the second wave bands like knew about messiah a little bit well, there's tons of pearl black metal in there for sure i mean like theatrical vocals and like the mayhem riffs and yeah i mean when we get to like extreme cold weather you know like which will we can like wait and talk about that when we kind of come back but like that sounds like a like it feels like a song dark throne would have written in the last 10 years you know or something like that it's just yeah, a very... I mean, there, there's a weird a line between are are they fucking with us are they is it like english as a second language you don't know if there's like intentional comedy or if it's totally serious. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> him, the, the opening track, the title track, him to Abram Mellon starts off with good people and bad musicians. That's like the opening, like weird, ominous voice. And I just laughed. I was like, good people and bad musicians. Is this like. And also there's no other uh, outside of some screams. I don't think there's any other lyrics on the song. Yeah, no, there's a lot of instrumentals. I mean, the, the first yeah. two songs are mostly instrumental, you know, and there's a lot of instrumentals on Extreme Cold Weather as well. Um, and Corner know. has instrumentals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, even even Frost does, especially it's when true. you get to yeah. you know, so, so, yeah, so there might have just been a, a, an aesthetic that was sort of part of that. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. But, yeah, so we're going to hear a trio of tunes from these two records, a pair of tunes from the hymn record, Um you know, when you get to the hymn record, it has this funny opening with good people and bad musicians. And then, you know, which throws me off guard a little bit before you get this kind of like primitive, almost like an evil, almost like a slowed down grinding, like hella weights type, like riff. Like it's just, it feels like evil, you know, in the way that hella weights feels like a, just like a incantation kind of, you know, it's like opening up doorways to bad places and you know i'm not comparing them exactly to slayer but it has that same sort of tone uh to some of the the notes a little bit um well, yeah, it was, the, the tritones the you know the, the yeah, devil's it's, it's in there interval yeah. <laughs> 
And what's really fascinating, I know you're not like as big of a Van Halen fan as me, but like this song being an instrumental, it's almost like the anti-eruption because like it's like doing nothing with like riffs. It's not really like forming a whole lot. It's just real primitive and stuff. And then the way that the song ends, like with the weird like notes and stuff is exactly the way that eruption begins. It's really, yeah. really interesting. Um, it's like reductive, you know, the song ends where Eddie's going to like begin his kind of, you know, famous guitar <laughs> instrumental. So I don't know. I, I think I was just overthinking it, but I was like, this is just strange. I, I doubt they give a shit about any of that, but it was uh, something that kind of jumped out to me a bit. And then um, thrashy madness, man, a fun tune. It's like destruction meets early Sepultura. Um, it's semi-instrumental. Like, you know, there's some groans and some screams that pummel the listener, but uh you know, it's not essential, but it's like if you like kind of like primitive proto death metal, proto black metal, really hard thrash that toes the line. This is a great record. It's fun, you know, and you can check it out on Spotify to see if you like the other songs on it. But um, there's some, you know, the the Messiah song is pretty fun. Uh, Anarchist is a good tune. Empire of the Damned is a really fun tune. Um, you know, there's there's. They're taking cues from Hellhammer. They're obviously listening to Celtic Frost a little bit, especially early Celtic Frost. And so if you like that kind of primitive styled stuff, this would be, you know, right up your alley. It's got a distinct like Eastern European flair (laughs) to it as well. Is it offbeat too? Is that what kind of like... Like the the weird, the offbeatness of like the... Everything else that we listen to on this episode is going to have much more of a cohesive... Yeah. direction behind it and, and there's there's a lot of just like what in the fuck are they thinking but like it, it just goes from one thing to the other you know it's it's crazy it seems like a band that like rotting christ would have listened to <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah they, they would t- have on their thanks list on you know yeah, the first record yeah. or something yeah, we were inspired by some <laughs> early messiah records or you know like you said tormentor would be another band that was kind of like that so yeah, yeah, def- definitely interesting. So, and we'll uh, we'll come back and talk about extreme cold weather as well. So, and that's where we're going to end with in this set. Um, and then uh, you'll hear a very brief but biting Tom G comment about his thoughts about Messiah. He doesn't seem <laughs> to be, be a fan. Um, but first, we'll hear his thoughts on the whole kind of scene. Um, and so we're going to hear from Tom G here um, a couple times, and then we'll hear Demon's Child from Carry On from the Evil Is There 1986 record, Shooting Star from Poltergeist's Depression record in 89, Pair of Tunes from 1986's Hymn to Abramelian. God, I cannot pronounce that word. I didn't look up what that meant either, did you? Abramelian. No, I didn't know if it was some religious association, you know, like Ab- Abrahamic religions or something like that, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. I was just thinking like some Wheel of Time thing, but... Yeah, it could be. It could be that. <laughs> some kind of Sumerian something, rather. Maybe. Some fantasy BS, but who knows? That's probably You're probably right with the Abrahamic religions. We'll look it up in the time being. Uh, we'll, we'll have an answer for you when we come back, I promise. Uh, or we won't, but or we'll won't. try. We'll yeah. forget. <laughs> yeah. We've got uh, the title track, then Thrashy Madness, and then we're going to end with Extreme Cold Weather from 1987's Extreme Cold Weather. There there was uh, quite a lot of bands in the Swiss scene, and I have to say Swiss scene in quotation marks. There wasn't really much of a scene, but there was a lot of uh, bands practicing in, in basements here and there in these villages. And we, we, we went to see as many as we could in little cl- tiny shows or in the rehearsal room. But the, the sad reality is that most of them try to sound either like the purple 
or like Crocus, because Crocus was at the time the only Swiss band that had had some measure of success uh, outside of Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So it it was it was very conservative, and and uh, there there was really no no innovation going on when we started. The the, the, the real scene that we encountered started in Germany. Okay. France, France, Germany, uh, Holland, Belgium, all these countries had scenes. We, we got the demos from there. We got singles from there. We got albums from there. And, and there was tons of underground bands that, that impressed us. There was, there was a, a, a compilation, I think, from Holland or Belgium called Metal Clocks, uh, which is an odd name. But uh, there was four bands on there, and they were, they were quite heavy, quite dark quite underground, things like that totally impressed us. But in Switzerland, unfortunately, it was very backward. And, and uh, I guess people were much more innovative when it comes to the financial sec- sector in Switzerland than uh, sure. when it comes to musical innovation. <laughs>
exactly. And and corner exactly corner tried to to be different. They they weren't just a straightforward thrash metal band. They always tried to be a slightly different with their lyrics, with their compositions, and that's why I think Green actually fits them. It suits them. That was extreme cold weather from Messiah, thrashing madness, and him to Abram Mellon from Messiah as well. And then we opened things up with Demon's Child from Carry On and Shooting Star from Poltergeist, and just heard from Tom G a couple times there. Um, yeah, I, what are your thoughts on extreme cold weather? Um, I like I said, I I I just said it seems like something Dark Throne loved a lot, and um. The other thing that jumps out to me in that song is like how in the middle of the song, you know, it's pretty groovy riff, pretty, you know, reductive and all that. And then all of a sudden it kind of goes into that weird, like, I don't know. um, Black Hole Sun? Post section? Kind of thing. Is that what you said? Black Hole Sun? I I kind of saw it as like a, like a post-punk thing. Like something like that, like some of these new bands that Chris and I are into, like, um, uh, God, why are they all escaping me at the moment? Oh my God. Like soft kill and, and some of those type of bands are doing a yeah. lot more of this, you know, your joy divisions and stuff like that. But it, there could, it there could be some of that. I mean, that's definitely, you know, part of what Celtic frost was. I was going to say it pulling in as well, but it was, it's almost the same chord progression as the black hole sun, like open note picking thing. Oh, shit. Okay. I'll have to listen. I didn't even think of Soundgarden. I was thinking total like post-punk. Except uh, like the Chris Cornell thing's got more, there's some, some more effect on it, you know? Yeah. It's a little more psychedelic kind of yeah. sounding. But I, I was also yeah, listening to some interview on YouTube with Kim uh, Thale, right? Kim Thale. Yeah. Talking about, he's like, I couldn't fucking play that, man. That, that, that was all Chris. <laughs> I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get it right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy how talented Chris was because he was also a drummer, you know. So like he was kind of the funny thing is I never knew that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And uh like that's I don't know. We've never really talked about doing a show about them, but that'd be an, an interesting thing to do down the road, I think. Oh, I I you you had me yesterday at Soundgarden. So that's yeah. they're, they're, they're them and Allison Chains are like foundational to my entire life in in ways that are pretty big. So um yeah. But it, the other part, that, that part that breaks down to extreme cold weather kind of reminded me of, it reminded me of like decisions Enslaved would make. Like I could see that. The, some of the more froggy, weird kind of choices and stuff. So if you listen to it again, listen to it like thinking of Enslaved, and I'll listen to it listen, thinking of Black Hole Sun, and we'll, we'll meet back up together and, and compare <laughs> notes. And it's freezing my blood. Yeah. I mean, it's there's also just even the fact that it's called extreme cold weather. It kind of gives me like some immortal vibes or something like that. Um, oh, totally. You know? And you know, me being in northern Michigan now, you know, exactly. actually today was fifty, which is crazy. But as I say, uh, tomorrow's gonna be sixty down where we're at. You know, we so. still got plenty of snow. So just our driveways yeah. less. Uh, it's more muddy than than slushy. You just got like hammered with snow, right? We had. Um, I mean, over the past what was it? The past month, we probably got two and a half feet. That's nuts. Yeah, we got like a, a light dusting. I mean, a little bit. It's, on the- it's pretty. I, I love the actually when I was doing um, <laughs> the first time I pulled the tractor out to clean off the road or clear off the driveway. I was just listening to pure Holocaust. <laughs> As one should. As yeah, one it should. just felt like ah, this this seems like the right thing to do. So talk to me about your opinion on the Messiah Extreme Cold Weather cover. Uh, best cover of all time or worst cover? Uh, I think there's some uh, middle ground there, but uh, okay. I think their logo is great. 
it's awesome it's awesome um i think if they would have taken the polar bear off the cover that would totally have changed what people thought about the record i agree i agree i think it's it's i can laugh at it now obviously because i'm not really taking that seriously but i can imagine how annoyed people might have been that they well, almost like a betrayal like what the well, who knows who did i mean back then like a lot of time record like the bands didn't have a whole lot of input on the record albums the cover you, really, you really think of record label called like chainsaw murder records is going to put a polar bear on there like against the will of the band i, I don't know it's i think that the band was um had a sense of humor they were telling if they didn't they had they were mentally deficient it's something, something <laughs> was fucking going on and i mean like they were fucking with people they had to have a sense of humor about i, I mean even like the song titles are ridiculous i mean they've got a hate song against john paul ii and mother Teresa, both yeah. kind of fuck you songs to them they've got a great thrash instrumental called hyperborea that's fantastic if you didn't mm -hmm. check it out they do kind of a black metal-ish cover of a Strauss song called uh, Redetze March. And then fucking four years later, this band re-emerges in 1991 on noise records with like a fucking Pestilence Testimony of Ancients record. Called That's a great record. Choir of Horrors. Yeah, I, it's a fucking incredible record. But it's like, who was this band? You know what I mean? I like, well, I, there's only the, the main guitar player is the only main. I was going to say, they exchange out some members. But like, yeah. what an eclectic, strange act they were, you know, like, yeah. again, you could tell me that no one in the second wave gave a shit about Messiah, or you could also say that a lot of the bands in the second wave loved this band. And I would believe either. I just don't know, you know, like, well, I think um, they fall into that same weird thing where like, uh, like Death SS, mm -hmm. where there was a lot of like campy Alice Cooper kind of stuff going on with them. But mm -hmm. a lot of like dead seriousness. <laughs> and I wonder if that, maybe like Tom's comment at the end there, which he didn't really go into. He just he said yeah. that little thing about Messiah. I wonder if you know he goes, Well, I actually know those guys, so I can't really like give them credit. So maybe he just knew they never took it seriously. And Tom's a guy who takes his art very seriously. He's, you know what I mean? He takes things very seriously. Yes. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different approach, you know. And maybe yeah. like you said, they were they were much more tongue in cheek. But um yeah, they uh continue on their way and and you know we're going to hear a pair of tunes from their 1991 record called choir of horrors but um definitely testimony of ancients pestilence area that's kind of the, the the vibe i sort of get especially from the title track um yeah that death thrash kind of mixture that pestilence was was so good at especially in those first couple records and it felt like something that uh century media would have put out in the first couple records okay i could see that it's got like some morgothisms to it and Hmm. Okay. I, I, I was thinking more maybe Roadrunner in the early years, but, but yeah, okay. I could early century media too. I think cause my brain was just on like your gore guts and pestilences and, and some of those kind of bands, I suppose. Um, yeah. Toe that line. Morgoth. I definitely, that'd be a fun episode to do down the road too. Cause that's a band I like a lot, but I haven't like spent the dedicated time on them. You know, they're also a deceptively simple sounding band mm -hmm. where you're like, eh, I get it. They're, this is the, the sound, but there, there's something about that guitar tone and it's, it's like a deceptively simple thing going on there. Cause at first I was like, these guys kind of, they're boring. And then you listen to it more and more like, oh, okay, I get where they're coming from. It's, you know, it's atmosphere. It's not just not throwing out 10 ideas, you know, per song. Did you put Morgoth in with like your asphyxes and those kind of bands, or did you see them as kind of separate from that kind of approach? 
I don't know. They they were so weird. They were German. Yeah. And Dutch, yeah. everything like German, the only thing that like relevant to me at that point was creator. Mm. That was, that was, you know, kind of in the German scene. I think cause when was, um, one of the first Morgoth record come out in 91, 1991. So that would have been what coma souls. Uh, yeah. Coma souls is 90. Yeah, 90. Sessions 89. So yeah. Yeah, so 89 like that that's what I was thinking of like Germany. There wasn't it didn't seem like much was happening right there. I wasn't paying attention to destruction at that point. It was you know, sure. it was just the Sodom was EP in the first record, record and yeah. Sodom uh, I didn't pay attention again till um tapping the vein. Yeah. For I had some of the earlier stuff but yeah. Um yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, Morgoth's just a weird band because they never really seem to fit anywhere particularly. No. <laughs> but they did. They made sense that they were on Century Media. That was the part that made sense. It's just they didn't really fit with like a scene that I could kind of like you know throw. So yeah, uh, yeah, definitely vibes of of that. I could I could definitely now that you say Morgoth, I I can kind of hear some of that. Um, but pestilence Northern- for sure. That's that's something I put down. I put like yeah, a yeah. it's almost a mashup of you know pestilence and you know, Norwegian early death metal and black metal. Yeah. Yeah. They, they toe the line. They're this proto kind of thing, you know, especially when you go back to their stuff in the eighties, like, you know, who are they influencing and who, you know, where were they taking their ideas? Obviously from Frost and Hellhammer originally, but like, they're just kind of doing some weird things, you know? So. Yeah. Um, almost like more, not, not gothy, but more, uh, there's more texture to it than, mm-hmm. than most other things. Which you know Frost does too, especially when you get mm-hmm. into ammonium and stuff. So like there, there seems to be this like I don't know, it's it's there. You know, um, there's there's definitely a, a an interesting vibe to to uh, what Switzerland kind of puts on the table, I mean, even if it's limited. You know, um, Northern Command's an interesting tune as well. You get some acoustic elements that kind of fuse into the song perfectly near the beginning, and when they lock into that riff. Uh, about a minute, minute 15 into Northern uh, Command, I, it, it reminds me of like Seasons in the Abyss when it kicks in after that like long little intro when Lombardo's kind of doing the little like drum fills and stuff. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden, dun, 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 dun. That's, yeah. that's the vibe I got from Northern Command. And I, maybe I was just thinking about Slayer a little bit last night when I was listening to this, but uh, it's fun. It's a fun tune. I mean, you can tell this album has two new members on it compared to the last, the last record, you know, that adds a little bit more to the, the creative process, but uh, even the record after it's not bad. I've, I've checked that out before. Um, and so, you know, I can't speak to stuff beyond that. Uh, I know they're still around. I did listen to a newer Messiah song today mm-hmm. just to see how it sounded. And um, they did like an updated version of extreme cold weather. And it was, it was fine. It was a little like, it was like too good. It was like, too well played. Like I wanted it to still. That's be the to- thing with them is they they work better when they're, um, you know, punching above their weight a little bit, and the they they don't exactly know what they're doing. Yeah, I appreciate that about them. Yeah, and like I mean, there's definitely like the the earlier the opening part there. I I got like vibes of Tiamat, and then mm. it kicks into like Agent Steel, like yeah. full on speed metal. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So Tiamat, that's, I, I kind of think Tiamat when I hear Seasons of the Abyss a little bit, that same kind of like spectral vibe, you know, mm-hmm. eeriness, you know, but beautiful eeriness, I suppose. So um, speaking of Seasons of the Abyss, I, I 
you know, I, I long for these days when like a student randomly walks in and is like, what Slayer song should I listen to? I've been kind of getting into Slayer lately. I, it's like it brightens my day as like a like an old person for like a young person to come in and be like, <laughs> I was like, you know, well, no, you can't go wrong with Seasons of the Abyss or some South of Heaven. You know, we're just mm-hmm. kind of talking about that sort of stuff. He's like, yeah, I, I'm really into War Ensemble. I'm like, hey, that's a good one, too. You know, it's cool. like just made my day. And then he exits out. So it was good. So I was just talking about Seasons the other day to some students. But uh, nice. Then we're going to hear from Max. Um, Max from Sepultura uh, kind of talks about this idea of the, you know, we're about to get into the two most important bands from Switzerland, Frost and, and Coroner here. And he draws these allusions to like how when a lot of the Brazilian metal came out, uh, people were like, wait, there's metal in Brazil. Isn't Brazil all about like sunshine and, you know, Mardi Gras and, and, or Carnival? Carnival, or, you know, yeah. Um, which is, is Mardi Gras, but like, you know, these cultural mispre- soccer, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that like, there can't be this like evil side to it. And he kind of compares it to, you know, Switzerland and the way that like people kind of have this, you know, mispronunciation. And he tells a really funny story about how he used to think about, um, you know, that Celtic Frost lived in like the snow covered mountains, like in isolation and stuff like that. And he always wanted to have that image of the Swiss Alps, like with Tom G and them like living up in there. So pretty funny. And uh, that's kind I mean, of the it's key. almost the same as uh, as death metal in Sweden. Yeah, you know, it's just like suburban, you know, thing. It's like everywhere, anywhere that there's like kids that are bored and they're not being, you know, they don't have enough shit going on. Like they need to figure out, make up this this new you know mythology or whatever. Sure. Uh, it's there. It's all in kids. I know uh, Tom G kind of talks a little bit about how one of the formative things that happened when in the early 80s was there was these sort of like youth riots that happened in Switzerland where they'd invested a whole bunch of like tax dollars into like rebuilding like the opera house in his community. And a lot of the younger people had like lobbied for them to build like community centers for kids or just give a shit about kids in general. And like the older generation just like didn't care. And so there was actually like a youth riot in Switzerland. I think, I don't know if he was part of, or he witnessed it. And he said that like that kind of awoke like a hunger in him to be kind of a, a rebel spirit, if you will, you know? And, and so even though Switzerland gets this reputation of being maybe kind of like a, you know, I mean, it's like a neutral, (laughs) it's a living symbol of peace in a lot of ways. You know, that there was this sort of boredom and this like discontent that was there, even if it is a fairly like, you know, safe country and, and, you know, wealthy and affluent and things like that. There's still like, you know, I mean, what was the conversation they had in the Until the Light Takes Us documentary that like in Norway, it was like life was almost like too good. And so they had to like create some like anger or create some adversity. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Death metal. Complacency like breeds interesting new shit usually. Yeah. Yeah, it can. I mean, obviously oppression and opposition does as well, like creates great, but but even the opposite of it can sometimes the the sort of general malaise of boredom, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, I think the malaise almost, at least in modern times, I think the malaise makes more interesting things than oppression or perceived oppression. You can. Yeah. Because a lot of times oppression has already, I don't want to say played itself out, but it's already sort of spoken its truth. And now it's just sort of on repeat, maybe. Yeah. You know, where is you might get something like, uh, you know, it's maybe something a little bit left of center, you know, almost, you know. So, 
But, um, you know, after that comment, we're going to get a trio, uh, of, a rollicking trio of Celtic Frost tunes from uh, Tomegatherion, their kind of 85 masterpiece. And um, one of these, you know, I, I don't know if we said this on mic in the, the first set or if this is something we were kind of talking about before, but there's, there's too much to say about Celtic Frost, obviously. And um, well, you know, it can be summed up in one word. Ugh. Yeah, uh, I didn't know if that's where you're going. I'm just taking a guess. <laughs> or you could say, "Hey, as well." Uh, yeah. yeah, you know what I miss? I miss uh, the the account on uh, Twitter X, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But whenever you make a Celtic Frost reference, the Celtic Frost send you who? Who? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it exists anymore. The person running it, uh, it maybe got off Twitter or whatever. But it's a shame um, the world's a darker place now. It is a yeah, a worse place now. I also don't see a lot of nihilist Arby's, which was another one of my favorite accounts that I follow on Twitter. So I don't know if you ever followed that one, but it would be like you know, slit your wrists, like put your head through a fucking wall and go buy a roast beef sandwich, Arby's, you know, like it was just be like these really horrific statements well, trying to there sell was, you. There was something that happened with Arby's. Uh, this was even like uh, when John Stewart was still on the daily show uh-huh. where he would oh, shit talk Arby's for yeah. no reason. Yeah. It was like a, it was like a thing. I don't know. I've always enjoyed Arby's. I mean, I, I don't or Arby's is always like the high end fast food, you know, coming from a small town in, in the yeah. Midwest. They have really good chicken strips, you know, man. After church, we would get uh, we would get some roast beef sandwiches. That would like got me through the whole thing. Okay, okay. See, yeah, you were a big fan. Of, I'm I'm like the chicken strips guy. There, I'm a little. Basic. I'm a beef and cheddar guy. I'm a I'm a beef and cheddar right. purist. Well, they had those like sliders with jalapenos on them, right, or something. That, those those are, are they they always uh, they always impress me. Yeah, they're good stuff. <laughs> for being for for trash, I really enjoy it. It's better than Here's Taco our little Bell. advertisement for for Arby's. For you know, for those of you who are international fans, don't worry about Arby's. You don't really need to. So, but you know, if you're we've ever got a, the meat, Ving Rams has still got a job. Thanks, he's, he's still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of Frost, obviously, you know, we've done a whole episode on them. Clearly, one of the most important bands in metal history. And I've done a book know. about them. I've got a tattoo yes. on my on my arm they're, about them. You know. Could we have retold the whole story of Celtic? We could have, but that's not the point of this episode. The point is just yeah. to put a little bit of the Swiss thrash in context. And I would say that, I don't know, Tomegatherion is maybe their most thrashy record. Um, Morbid Morbid has some of that, but it's still like a little bit in the Hellhammer camp, a little more. It's a little more primitive. Um, Tomega, I think, is a, it's such a sea change to for for anything like it. it any when people were just listening to thrash and they heard that that blew everybody away yeah that was yeah. a sea change from thrash to extreme metal well and i think like frost were never pure thrash by any means but they certainly yeah. drew from thrash and influenced thrash it's both like i think just of, like just like voivod yeah 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 yep, i agree yeah and that's that's a good touchdown uh, band um especially as we approach coroner because you know voivod and coroner have a lot in common in, in certain ways you know like voivod they brought the punk in that celtic frost brought in like you know venom black metal into yep. that whole thing yep yep so i guess you know i guess for fear of not really doing them justice uh we're not gonna really talk that much about them <laughs> yeah, about that you know like there's so much to talk about that just even getting like a little bit into it, it's just like almost like what's the point? But yeah, but I think everybody like, knows these songs. These are like 
these are like cultural touchstones in extreme sure. metal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so you're going to hear a triad of songs here as kind of a sample, just so you know that they're part of this Swiss story. And then like our focus will kind of shift to the relationship that they had with a band like Coroner and, and some of that. But um, I think it also shows how great they, they may not have been like the greatest musicians, but they were incredible songwriters. Yes. Incredible. Yeah. Really, I mean, Usurper and Jewel Throne have, Throne have all these like really super fucking catchy elements, you know. And with um, Reed St. Mark on drums, like he was probably the most prolific musician out of the bunch. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, but just the, the groove that he's able to, the propulsive groove that you hear in, in all these songs too, this like towing that line between death and thrash. Um, you know, Jewel Throne, you hear a little bit of that procreation of the wicket kind of riff, kind of making a little bit of a meandering kind of thing. It's a little more ominous and mid-paced, maybe not as direct until like, you know, you get to uh, the midsection where you get a little thrash gallop kind of going and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I also decided I you know, Faint It, uh, Faint It Eyes is not a song that gets, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of love. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to play that one instead of one of the more obvious ones. But uh mm-hmm. You got some good thrash velocity, cool bass licks, and lots of good he- fucking headbanging riffs here. You know, so it's just a, a cultural touchstone. You know, with the the the, the Geiger cover and and you know, yeah, it was the- everything about it. You know, because you know, with Alien being like bring bring Geiger to the the mainstream as far as uh, like who's this weird Swiss artist making this shit, and then you know, like you look at that, and like God, this stuff is like perfect for heavy metal covers, and yep. then boom, here you go. There you go. And so, uh, yeah, so Frost, you know, had been around from Hellhammer, you know, since like 83. And by the time you get to to here, they're kind of at the midpoint of this sort of interesting journey that they're about to sort of take when they start to get more into the experimental stuff. So, you know, you can't go wrong with with any of the the stuff that they were put out in the the sort of mid to, you know, really up to into the pandemonium. And then I think it gets a little a little dicier, <laughs> but uh you know, right. that's, it just gets different. <laughs> it's just different. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you notice, the, yeah, no, nothing, right. nothing uh, after that point where that, you know, the record that, that he likes to disavow is not on any of the box sets or anything. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. So let's get into it. Let's kind of finish our, our last kind of uh, background on stuff that was sort of leading to- towards and maybe influencing corner, or at least kind of part of this little scene here. So, we're going to hear a pair of tunes from uh, Messiah's Choir of Horrors record from 91. We'll hear from Max from Sepultura. Then we're going to hear a trio of Celtic Frost tunes from Tomegatherion from 1985, The Usurper, Jewel Throne, and Faint Eyes.
metal and rock breaks down those stereotypes, you know. Um, because even in, in Brazil, if you look at, at the stereotype of Brazil, it's like beaches, football, you know, girls in G-strings in the, in the beach, you know, and coffee, you know, and Pelé. And then you have us. metal you know <laughs> was not supposed to happen but it did and it was people were like why brazil why there's metal coming from brazil later on they found out another side of brazil was really poor third world people were pissed off people like us like me that grew up without money we were rebellious you know for real <laughs> So I, I don't think the fact is from Switzerland because it's like banks and clean and organized um, would have got in the way. I, I don't think. In fact, me and my friend, when we used to think, talk about Switzerland, about Celtic Frost, we always imagined like the Swiss Alps and cold. And uh, we always thought maybe Celtic Frost living, lives in the cavern in the Swiss Alps. <laughs> That's our imagination, you know? <clears throat> it was kind of like that. We, we like to, you know, imagine they were like really kind of cool barbarians living in the mountains. And of course they weren't, you know? <laughs> that was just us imagining that.
that was Fainted Eyes, Jewel Throne, and The Usurper from Celtic Frost. Then we heard Choir of Horrors and Northern Command from Messiah from the Choir of Horrors record. So here we are, Mark. Now it's time to kind of set the band up that we kicked this whole episode off with. And uh, I've, got, I've got some history for us, a little history lesson. Uh, for those of you that don't know, that's what I teach. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll kind of throw some stuff together. I was telling Mark, it was pretty fun. Uh, I was a little time crunch this week to get show notes and stuff. So today in my, um, I teach a college class to high school kids, a humanities pop culture class. And we're, we're doing Joseph Campbell uh, hero's journey and they've got to apply it to star Wars. So luckily we were watching star Wars in class. And so then I had a coroner documentary on my phone playing in front of me while Star Wars was playing and it was subtitled because it's mostly in German. And so I could like watch it in silence and kind of like take a few notes while like other things were, ha- it was, it was, I don't know, it was kind of a shit show, but it worked out all right. So um, basically, you know, to kind of lay some of this out and I've got um, another good resource that we'll be reading from uh, too in this set from David Gelke, who just recently did the Scott Burns book and also did the Paradise Lost book and the Amorphous one. Is that, is that what he did as well? Uh, obituary. Think, or is it obituary? He might've done the Amorphous okay, one too. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I'm looking at it from afar, but I can't read the author name on it, but um, he did this book that came out in 2017, which I haven't read all of. I've just kind of like piecemealed a few things through, but it's called Damn the Machine, uh, the story of noise records. Got a nice little forward from a uh, friend of the friend of uh, Eclipse Requiem, uh, Hansi Kirsch from Blind Guardian. And um, obviously Coroner is going to get signed by noise records. So there's there's quite a bit of detail on them in there as well. So um, between the two. We should be able to sketch out some of the stuff here. We're also going to start hearing from uh, in this next set of music from Joseph Schaefer as well. Quite a few times him kind of starting to comment on some different things. But basically the band was kind of started from the drummer, uh, Marky. Um, and he was a big Kiss fan, uh, big ACD, ACDC fan sort of growing up. Um, band kind of started as Voltage in the early 80s before they actually switched to Corner. So even like Martin uh, Ain kind of acknowledges that Corner actually predates Hellhammer as a band. And so they're actually one of the older kind of bands of this, you know, scene, I suppose. Um For totally different but then stuff Mark, too though. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. But he was just kind of like a lot of people think of Frost as like the beginning, you know, and Coroner came later, but in a weird way they, they kind of technically started a little bit before. Yeah. Um he had to leave for military service. And when he came back, essentially there wasn't much of a band left uh, except for kind of one, uh, one guitar player that he still kind of worked with. And that guitar player was named Oli Omberg and Oli Omberg will be in the early sort of, uh, you know, coroner as a guitar player. And it's interesting too, because, you know, he'll leave uh, obviously when, when corner starts to sort of become the coroner we're more familiar with, but he'll later sort of show up on a record called cold Lake as a guitar player for Celtic Frost. And so that's very interesting synergy, just how that story kind of, you know, kind of goes into an Ouroboros almost, you know, this <laughs> kind of circular there. The but, Celtic um, Frost that eats itself. Exactly. You got it. Then they bring in Tommy Vitrelli. Um, and he, his whole sort of thing that he kind of talked about was he had been uh, a violin player, actually quite a, quite a well-trained violin player. And I think they tell the story about how he, uh, you know, basically realized that the guitar was way sexier than the violin, but, you know, so very skilled, you know, learned musician. So he kind of knew what he was kind of doing. And once he started to take guitar seriously, he would just basically join up with a bunch of bands that already had a guitar player 
And he would join them for a bit, steal every technique he could from the people he was in the band with and then quit the band and move on to the next band. <laughs> He's like a vampire or something like that, you know, <laughs> and uh, stealing, moving on, that whole kind of thing. And he was actually playing in a band with a guy named uh, Ron Broder, who, of course, will become Ron Royce. Um, and their band was called Diamond. And um, that's when they sort of meet up with Marky. So these two are in a band. And um, they were joking in the documentary that um, Marky was reluctant to combine forces with them because the two of them had terrible mustaches that he hated. <laughs> so it's really, pretty, pretty, pretty funny. And then he kind of talks about how Marky kind of pitched them on the idea of like wearing masks. Uh, and he joked it was to hide their mustaches. But um, he had a friend that I think worked in a gay shop, like an S&M shop. And so they essentially like were going to like wear like gimp masks, almost like what Samson wore. Uh, the, okay. The, was it the drummer in Samson that wore the gimp mask? I'm trying to remember. Who... Yeah, was it Thunderstick that had like the gimp mask that he I think wore? so. Yeah, because uh, he... Sam like Dickinson was as Bruce Bruce just had his uh, he had like a tunic on or something. Yeah. So for those of you don't know, what we're talking about Samson. Thunderstick a... would get just shit bomb drunk too and fall yeah. off. His... <laughs> they were a stool. <laughs> kind of a, a, a C level, B level Nawabum band. That's where Bruce Dickinson, of course, came from before he joined up with Iron Maiden. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah, they were going to wear these masks and then have like mohawks on top or something. But obviously they, they, they ditched the idea of the mask. It doesn't quite work out. But in terms of like where, you know, as they're starting to form together, I guess their main influences that they started to talk about would be, you know, Merciful Fate was a big one for them. Uh, Ingve Malsteam, especially Tommy on guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, Nasty Savage from Florida, who, you know. Wagner's done an episode, you know, Radical Research has done an episode on Nasty Savage. And then obviously all those Florida bands like always name drop Nasty Savage. Betrayal Death. And yeah. yeah, I think I've got their early stuff. That would be a fun episode to do because I don't know shit about them until I actually like kind of be forced to do something on them. I probably would come away because I like them. I just don't know a lot about I them. I probably know more about the their history than their music. It'd be yeah, interesting okay. just to like listen to the yeah. music itself. Yeah, music's good. You know, I I totally get how they were like a proto to like a lot of different things. So I can kind of hear in a weird way they had they had kind of a a progressive or technical sort of style in in their primitive sort of stuff, which is I think why radical research guys are into them and why the coroner guys would be into them because they can hear something a little different there. You know, they're not. Well, they were kind of the previous guard too, like but doing something different. Exactly. Yeah. From all the like all the young kids were you know coming up with you know executioner and all this crap and these guys sure. were like at the top of their game for that you know kind of that previous genre yeah it was like pretty much in florida it was like them and sabotage were kind of like the yeah the, the, like old guard i guess but um um but yeah also you know coroner they were really into exodus quite a bit and then obviously slayer metallica megadeth those kind of bands definitely some slayer we'll hear later um you know, the whole thing that they wanted to do, and this is kind of from the mouth of the band, is they say basically wanted to be innovative. They wanted to be hard. They wanted to be technical. And as you said before, they to quote, they said they want thrash metal combined with neoclassical. That was kind mm -hmm. of their whole thing, you know. And it's weird because, you know, we've talked so much about this in this episode, but Switzerland really was sort of defined by this like weird band cultural crossroads sort of meeting of different styles. I mean, even like a band we haven't really mentioned that one of the biggest bands that came from Switzerland was Yellow, um, you know, and Yellow was like, you know, known for their, you know, one hit wonder of, oh, yeah, but um, like that's such a weird fucking band too. like what they were mm -hmm. doing weird kraut rocky almost like kind of synth stuff you know and they 
they make it into two of the biggest movies of the 80s you know secrets of my success and ferris bueller you know it's like kind yeah. of iconic kind of soundtrack kind of stuff the young gods Ooh, yeah. Celtic sauce, you know i think we should do a poll i don't know where you stand on this because i know you said you haven't seen secrets of my success in like decades correct Oof, is that the movie michael j fox movie yeah so I, I couldn't i couldn't even tell you what it's about i, so I think poll, i know more about doc hollywood than i know about that oh uh, hey you know what doc hollywood <laughs> is a pg-13 movie mark that shows breasts yes that's maybe why i i, I know more but and uh probably uh, just I, because it came out after that that's uh yeah it's not very it good. more in a horror at that point but i will say as a connoisseur of 80s comedies that i am um you know, Seekers of My Success is not bad. That's the one I think I was telling you about that Quentin Tarantino was a big fan of uh, when they did like the 1987 draft. He drafted it and he was like, that's my favorite comedy of that year. And I was like, holy shit. And then I went okay. back and watched it again. But there's two very iconic scenes that use that music. There's the one in Secrets of My Success. And then there's like the scene in Ferris Bueller where the principal's trying to break into the house and stepping in the dog shit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which movie, and maybe you don't care, but I'm putting this out to our listeners, give us some feedback. What's the better use of yellows? So, yeah, if you're a fan of both those movies, who uses that song better as a kind of a montage? So I think that's we'll the most better. <laughs> we're going to ask in this whole episode is, is that. So, um, but yeah, definitely like just weird vibes kind of going on. And like I said, I think like the idea that even though metal was difficult in Switzerland, it gave them a unique advantage uh, versus say being an American band that might get lost in the shuffle. And I think corner, like I said, is a, a kind of a, a prime example of that um, in terms of how they kind of meet Tom, Tom met Marky and befriended him in 81, 82 when Hellhammer went to actually a, a fight when corner was like a five person band. Some of the guys in Hellhammer actually attended a corner rehearsal and um by the time corner like reforms with you know now being a power trio they sort of go to tom and ask if he wanted to sort of first produce their demo then write lyrics for the demo and then eventually they're like we don't really have anybody to sing in the demo so would you, would you do that and uh ron wasn't quite comfortable singing yet and they thought you know tom's presence was was going to give you know this corner demo some some gravitas you know and we'll, we'll listen to some cuts from the the death cult demo here in a, a moment uh, um and then they kind of became roadies with celtic frost right after they did the demo on the uh to mega theory on tour when they toured with voivod and running wild and um mark in the u.s the, right in the u.s yep yep um, Marky was a drum roadie and Tommy was a guitar roadie. And, um, you know, Tom even admits around that time, I think it was in the documentary. He was like, I already knew they were better musicians than us because they are our roadies. And they were like doing things by tuning the guitars and the drums. And we didn't, they were doing things we didn't understand. And we're like, cool, thanks. You know? Yeah. But the reason why this was so important, this tour, especially, and I'll, I'll read from the book here in a second is it, it actually helped kind of, filter their demo tape like internationally because everywhere they went everywhere tom was being interviewed he would sell people on this coroner tape and give the demo to journalists and give the demo to different people and so it sort of helped kind of like make it like a it went viral in a weird way in a way that like it was hard to do in the 80s with tape trading to get things to go that quickly and um, well he was wearing they're wearing corner shirts and stuff on stage Exactly. So, so much, you know, kind of um, word of mouth. And because Tom was such a respected guy at that point, 
you know, like I said, the gravitas of being attached to Celtic Frost and a Tom G warrior and stuff, I think really helps these guys get out the gate much quicker than maybe some of the other bands that had to go through a lot more sort of struggles to get signed and to get albums out and stuff. And, um, one thing we'll talk about a little bit more when we come back, you know, after we we listen to this next set of music and we start talking about that debut record is Coroner's pretty fully formed out the gate, you know, more than a lot of bands are, you know, I'm not saying that RIP is my favorite record from them because it's not, but like they've got their shit together pretty quick. You know, they're, they're not, you know, some bands start very primitive um, and don't have like a lot of like their core ideas. And I feel like Corner had their like all their puzzle pieces more or less put together. But even by the time they're putting a lot of the ideas down their demo. Um, and well, this so is also like the, the second incarnation of the band, though, too. That's true. Yeah, they've been around since 81. So they've had some years to do it. But but, um, but this is like as far as like what they'll go on to sound like. I think you're you're right on with like they, they kind of had that figured out from the demo yeah. stage. Yeah, and some bands don't, and that's fair. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just yeah. one of the things that's like kind of interesting, I think, about Corner, you know. Well, I think so, the, the power power trio did nothing but help them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they have that same kind of power uh right out the gate that you know, your creams and, and some of those kind of famous power tree, you know, Jimi Hendrix experience, like early motorhead. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to like formulate you don't have to negotiate a whole lot. It's like, you know, um, in a way, Marky becomes kind of the guy that's in charge of like the visual creative side. Tommy's the songwriter and Ron's the singer. Then uh, it's like everybody's got their role and they don't really like interfere and there's no egos there. You know, and yeah. I think that's really helpful. So so this is uh, from the David Gelke book, The Dam of the Machine, and it goes over some of the stuff I just talked about, but kind of solidifies it a bit. So here we go. It said, if Coroner's initial direction of melodic hard rock and metal would have floated in their hometown of Zurich, Switzerland, then the dizzyingly technicality of arguably metal's most talented power trio would have never come to fruition. Before the legendary triplets of Ron Royce, Marquise Markey, uh, and Tommy T. Barron became an underground sensation and Switzerland's second most prominent pure metal band after Celtic Frost, the band employed the services of one Oliver Amberg, who, along with the aforementioned drummer, Marquise Markey, real name Marcus Edelman, formed the core of early Coroner. After ditching the less interesting moniker of Voltage, Coroner became a live mainstay in the Zurich club scene, donning a quasi-motley crew look and stage show, complete with smoke and rubber dolls. That's pretty funny. I don't know what they're doing <laughs> with rubber dolls. but um, Which fell right in line with the music they were playing. As a common occurrence among young Swiss bands, the time came when the uh, pivotal moment when making an attempt to go professional or retreating to the comfortable confines of civilian life had to be made, prompting the band's Mach 1 lineup to dissolve. Quote, there was coroner Mach 2 when Marky and I decided to carry on as coroner, says Omberg. The other two guys left the band. Marky and I wanted to carry on, and we recorded a demo tape with three or four songs as a duo. Marky played drums, I played guitar, bass, and I sang. Well, it was some kind of singing, he laughs. It didn't work out at all. And then he decided to go with Ron and Tommy, which was a very wise decision. We never had problems. We never had issues. I, can, uh, I can't even remember why we split up. It was natural. It was fine. We never had trouble with each other. When I met him after 25 years, it was just like meeting an old buddy, like no time in between. My skills are limited, and I look at Tommy and what he's playing, and I can dream about it, but I can't play it. There's no disputing Tommy uh, Vitrelli, uh, usually known by his more recognizable stage name of Tommy T. Barron, was an improvement in the guitar department. 
Even though Amberg's playing has often been put through the ringer based on his stint with Cold Lake-era Celtic Frost, the guitarist must have been good enough to hold the attention of Edelman, whose blend of jazz and thrash provided the backbone most Swiss bands would die for. Yet it was Vitrelli's playing that would forever be in focus throughout Coroner's career, a talent harnessed at a young age. I started to play violin when I was eight, says Vitrelli. Then when I was 12, I changed a guitar because I saw Jimi Hendrix on TV and it looked way cooler than playing the violin. In the beginning, I didn't practice at all. I was really lazy. I was a bad student. When I hit 15 or 16, I started to play with bands and I always chose a band with another guitar player that played better than me. I tried to steal from them and then moved on to the next one. Vitrelli's pre-corner band was Diamond, which also featured bassist Ron Broder, otherwise known as Ron Royce. After the all-too-usual disagreements over musical direction, Vitrelli and Royce split with Diamond and hooked up with Edelman. Edelman, who not only came up with the coroner name, but also the band's visual spearhead, was the perfect complement to the pair's advanced musical skills. Even finding a direction, according to Vitrelli, wasn't very difficult. Before we played together for the first time, we talked and partied a lot. Ron and me, we've were been more into melodic, Iron Maiden-styled stuff, and Marky was into extreme stuff. We could find something which we all liked, and that was Merciful Fate. Maybe the vocals were a little special, but the music was awesome. We liked Nasty Savage, but I was also into Ingve and guitar players like Alan Holdsworth. That's what I was listening to most of the time. Then you get into the heavier stuff, and I was listening to Slayer and Exodus and all those bands. The band's first sonic representation came in the form of their legendary Death Cult demo, which featured vocal contributions from none other than Celtic Frost, Thomas Gabriel Fisher. Ooh. Unable to... Ooh, yeah, thank you. That's, there's the bot working. <laughs> Unable to secure a proper vocalist, Vitrelli said the band hunted high and low for a tried-and-true metal singer with range like Iron Maiden or Judas Priest. The band asked Fisher, who at the time served as a sort of quasi-mentor for the trio. I actually wasn't into his vocals when I first heard them. They weren't musical enough for me, says Vitrelli. But like other stuff, you get used to it. Then you hear the beauty and power. The same happened with Ron. We're really thankful for Tom. We just went straight uh, to the studio and he came in and sang with the three or four songs. At the time, I was learning to be a car mechanic. I was a hobby guitarist. I was the only guy there with long hair in the school. I always had black hands when I was playing. Then I started to teach guitar shortly thereafter and that changed a lot. I was practicing more and totally got into it. That first time in the studio for me, that was the biggest change in my life. After this, I decided to break off from everything. I quit my job. I told my parents, that's what I want to do. I want to work in a studio and not work on cars. You can't imagine their reaction. My father was nodding. Okay, I knew that was coming. I won't talk to you anymore. But two days later, he did talk to me and said, if you really want to do this, it's okay with me, but do something. All this time, a lot of times, like all musicians who have money problems asking their dad to pay rent for this month, uh, and he never asked, even till uh, this day. Why didn't you finish your old job? It was one man and one word. I really appreciated that. Before any real work on Corner could begin, Vitrelli and Edelman accompanied Celtic Frost on their 86 North American tour with Running Wild and Voyevod as roadies. The tour served as an eye-opening experience on many levels for the Coroner pair, including getting a first-hand look at how a full-scale operation functioned, even if the tour had its share of ups and downs. Going there for free with a band to learn and see how stuff on tour works and everything, it was a chance we had to take, says Vitrelli. Uh, I would have been happier if he, Fisher, had asked me to join the band, of course. It was great. Our demo was just finished, and every time Tom did an interview with some journalists, he gave the guy one of our demos. When uh, we came back from the tour, all the magazines wrote about us, which was really good for the band. 
The tour didn't go too well for me and Marky. We didn't get a lot of sleep. Marky had to drive. That was the hardest tour I've been on my whole career. For me, when I almost couldn't believe it. When we were in LA, we went to the Rainbow. Just the girls there. It was like, what the fuck? We met <laughs> Lars Ulrich, Ingve Malstein, Blackie Lawless with two chicks in his arms. It was like a dream. So <laughs> there's a good sort of introduction to sort of, uh, you know, what kind of gets them sort of going. And, um, you know, most of that you probably knew, but there's, you know, maybe a few little things here and there. But I wanted to share one last thing from from a, another book. And it's the only time I'm going to turn to this book in either episode. But it's one little short page that uh, Tom G. Warrior writes this book. Um, I don't know when Are You Morbid come, comes out. Do you remember when that book came out? I would say 2000, uh, 2000, about. 2005. Yeah, it's, it's actually 2000. 2000? Okay. Kind of hard to find now. Right. I, I believe I think it was, it was going for a lot of money at a certain point in time, but I, I don't know if it is anymore, but um, yeah, it's called, are you morbid into the pandemonium of Celtic frost from Tom G warrior. And uh, this is kind just of before one... like all the, like before the Celtic frost oh. kind of got reinvigorated and everything too. Yeah. And it's got on the cover. It's great. It's got a Kurt Cobain pull quote, you know, yeah. big influence because Cobain loved Celtic Frost, you know. So um, it says, upon my return from the Tomegatherion sessions in the autumn of 1985, a Swiss band approaches me asking me to help them with their demo. Corner are three piece with material somewhat in the Frost vein, although much more technical. These guys are among the few musicians with whom I can talk without encountering bullshit. So I naturally agreed, eventually ending up producing a demo, writing the lyrics and even singing on it when they find themselves without a singer and shyly ask whether I would guest on vocals too. Coronal will later be managed by Andy Seagrest and go on to be signed to Noise Records. And there are also further connections between us as the Bauckham show approaches. The guys from Coroner agree to work for us at our, as our crew. Marky, the drummer, and Tommy, an extraordinarily accomplished guitarist and guitar teacher, join us on the road. What can I say? Marky receives his introduction to the other side of Celtic Frost the night of the show. He shares a hotel room with Reed, and don't we all know what that means? An obese blonde has been hanging around the dressing room all night, and we had thought that she must have been connected with the local promoter. Not so. It's a surprise when she joins Reed for the hotel after the show. <laughs> Martin and I hear the aching... Martin and I hear the aching bed springs through the wall as Reed goes about his business. It all ends with a loud clang and noises of falling debris. Puzzled, we fall asleep. In the morning, we found out that Reed's bed has given in to the strain of our drummer molding his portly prey. <laughs> Marky, <laughs> pretending to be asleep in the bed next to them, has burst out laughing. Thus... And with the stimulating sight of menstrual blood-covered bedsheets, Marky is welcome to the avant-garde private world of Celtic Frost. <laughs> and thus ends your reading from the fucking coroner tour. So when they say, in the previous section, when they say Marky went through a lot on that tour, it's not just the driving, but he was also like horrified to be part of uh, some some pretty odd situations, well, I suppose. Read St. Mark's... Uh, proclivities <laughs> yes oh shit oh my god it's hilarious um so now we're going to kind of get into this early stage of coroner and the death cult demo um we are going to hear from joseph schaefer for the first time from like i said from colony drop and uh, he'll kind of introduce himself and stuff like that for the first time 
We're also going to hear a cool excerpt I found floating around YouTube. It's a, like a minute long kind of thing. It's a, kind of a recording in the studio of Tom talking about his vocals and then kind of like sampling a little bit of his like vocal approach. Uh, it, so it's like an excerpt from the studio. Pretty neat. And um, then a couple examples from the actual demo, uh, Spectators of Sin and The Invincible here. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess like, the demo is cool because it's this basically this Venn diagram of the primordial rawness of Celtic Frost Hellhammer mixed with, with like the technicality that Corner will sort of have. So it's almost like a mashup or like a team up for one like kind of album. And I don't know, I, I knew that you would love this demo. I was like, oh, this will probably be like one of Mark's favorite things on the whole episode because obviously Tom and, and just that sound, but. What are what were your kind of takeaways of some of the samples that you kind of checked out and kind of digested here in terms of what makes this demo so like interesting to you? Well, I mean, it's for I think with Tom being involved um, and you know what their kind of duties were before this was done, like it's definitely like uh, like uh, Celtic Frost Babies, if it was yeah. like, you know, like Muppet Babies or something. Yeah, yeah, but, no, uh, like but there's definitely more some more like thrash stuff going on. There's um, I mean, Tommy rips the fucking blazing solo at like the four fifteen mark of Spectators of Sin, so he's already starting to flash some of that technique. Oh, totally, yeah. But there, but I think the framework of Celtic Frost is still firmly in play. But they're yeah. really kind of emphasizing a lot. Of I think that lead reminds me of an old Sirith Ungol lead mm. with, with yeah, whatever that uh, you know, whatever that like high gain or whatever they're using that like chorus or something on it that just makes it like just blows it up into the. Uh, like right out front and there's like a little iron maiden twin lead thing toward the end they're still like figuring out what what they want to be but tom being part of it kind of makes it it's almost like like some lost you know celtic frost ep because how many exactly. things is he really sung on i know you and, know so and it's like outside of hellhammer cool. triptychon and celtic frost that's kind of it yeah and so like for people that maybe have not polyon sun i'm sorry yeah polyon sun yeah <laughs> But I think like, you know, for me discovering this, because obviously I don't own it um, yet, I'm, I'm trying to track down a CD copy of it, but um, I picked up the record for 20 bucks. Yeah, so I, I, I just got to look for the CD. It's um, on Hell's Headbangers. You can pick it up there. Oh, well, there you go. On CD I'll, too. I'll order it tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, it was just, it, it was, it was such like a, a lost gem to sort of like spend some time with and and you know my assumption was that it would sound a lot more like corner and then mm -hmm. when i started digging into it i mean it's a fucking like you know spectators of sin you've got the the rhythm guitar that's very frost driven you know before oh. tommy kind of does some leads and stuff and you know you said sirathon ghoul i hear a little i i hear a little bit like of the kill em all kind of sort mm -hmm. of flip a little bit throughout it and even like there's this sort of part not at the very like last 10, 15 seconds, but there's a part kind of in the last minute and a half or so that reminds me a little bit of like seventies rush, just a little bit. And I think that's, I think that's what I was thinking of was, was uh early maiden. Oh yeah. And that could be too. Yeah. 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 And cause maiden, definitely a seventies rush and maiden, you know, shared a lot of mm -hmm. certain things. Yeah. Before rush got like almost two, uh, I want to say I don't know what the word is when they were like still press the steel that kind of era still yeah still yeah. very firmly like in the kind of hard rock kind of Sabbathian mm -hmm. camp kind of had some some tendrils of in those early records but uh 
yeah, it's 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 a fucking killer tune, Spectators of Sin, and then um Invincible. Fuck. It's like Diamond Head meets fucking Hellhammer. It's like a Nawabum yeah. opening, but it's like done through like the grind of fucking Hellhammer. And it's doomy and raw and it's fucking sweet. And there's like a Mustang riff around two minutes. I'm like, okay, that sounds like fucking kill them all, ride the lightning, you know, killing is uh, my business type kind of riff that's kind of coming through, oscillating through the sound a bit. And it's like, it kind of moves back and forth between the two moods, which is really interesting. It's like, okay, it wants to be a doomy frost riff and they'll like speed up for like 30 seconds and they'll just like go back into this like swamp of, of stuff. It's, it's cool. You know, another killer Tommy solo right around the four minute mark, just like the previous song. So let's see the, 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 it's that Sabbath, you know, tritone thing. Yeah. And then yeah. that last minute is just fucking crazy. I just put it kills. <laughs> yeah. Fucking awesome. Yeah, for sure. Really cool. And then, um, then we get a tune that I didn't really know where to put it, but um, it it shows up on the Death Cult demo a lot, even though it's obviously recorded post Tom a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And it's a song that like showed up on the Doomsday News compilation. And I don't know how much you know about the Doomsday News compilation, but it was a compilation that Noise would put out and they did different volumes of them. And this is volume one. And listen to this lineup. You know, we've, we've done episodes, you know, dedicated to War Comp and, and, uh, Oh, shoot. Uh, projections of a stained mind mm-hmm. and things like that. So the sampler had this song, Arrogance in Uniform, this unknown, you know, coroner song that you couldn't get really anywhere else. Rage, Death Row, Tanker, Halloween, Voyavod, Celtic Frost, Sabbath, Creator, Vendetta, and Scanner. Wow. It's, pretty, it's a nice little piece of history, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. getting that sampler in 88 would probably have been like, holy fuck, you know, like this is this kind of mind-blowing and i think um i read some kind of commentary from some people that did get a hold of it and this was like their introduction to a band like corner or their introduction to a you know uh probably at this point maybe voivod you know because that was right around killing technology you know um you know again if you weren't like in the metal underground that was a great way to sort of be introduced to all that kind of stuff yeah um, don't forget about uh in the eyes of death death's yeah. door from roadrunner that's a pretty important one. I know a lot of people that talk about the one century black sampler, uh, people younger than us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that came with the match. What the hell was that called? Century um, black stuff. Yeah. Remember it was a century media. Was it like Firestarter or something. Firestarter. That's what it was. Yeah. And it came yeah, with the match. Yeah. I mean, what a great fucking sampler that was. <laughs> if you didn't know anything about black metal, like that well, even was like, like the concrete corner one. stuff was like yeah. huge, you know? Yep. Those were those were a big deal, you know. So um you obviously it's a post demo song. I don't know. I think it's recorded around the same time that RIPs recorded it. So yeah. you know, um but you can you know definitely hear the the tech shred stuff starting to kind of be integrated more, less of the frost stuff in there. Um I think it's the first time you hear corner sounding like corner. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. the birth. Ron's vocals are sort of in there. Um, you know, it's got a pretty again. I'm going to say this for every song. A really good solo, Mark. I don't know if it you is. know this. Tommy's a pretty fucking good guitar player and um, good leads. Uh, it's got a bounce. It's yeah, got the, it's got the obituary bounce in it. Yep, less doomy, more bounce. <laughs> yep, it's like uh, you know, Bud Light. You know, uh, yeah. less, less filling, less filling, uh, or great tasting, less filling. Great or... taste, less filling. That's what it was. Yeah, <laughs> and so. 
so yeah, so you get you know a pretty good sampling of all this kind of stuff here. So we um, um, and then we're gonna end with a tune that we'll talk about more when we come back because it's the first official tune from their debut record, R.I.P. And we'll we'll set all that sort of stuff up. So um, so we're gonna hear from uh, Joseph Schaefer, and then we'll hear about you know Tom in the studio, kind of talking about uh, a little excerpt of putting the vocals together. Then we're gonna hear Spectators of Sin from the Death Cult demo um schaefer will kind of you know appear several times throughout in between some songs with different commentary then we'll hear the invincible also from the death cult demo arrogance and uniform uh from the doomsday news compilation from 1988 uh and then we'll end with reborn through hate from coroner's r.i.p and we'll hear from uh, a brief brief little commentary from michael uh Ackerfeld from from opeth uh talking about uh that particular record from coroner so lots to chew on here enjoy all right, so we've got uh, our old Requiem friend, Joseph Schaefer. Uh, introduce people to your your metal credentials, uh, Joseph, for people that may have forgotten. Well, thank you very much. Uh, if people want like a deeper dive, they can probably go back into uh, when we did that Discordance Axis episode yeah. or further back, Tribulation, the Tribulation episode. Yep. yep, indeed. Love doing both of those. Um, so... I write for Decibel Magazine. I used to be editor-in-chief at Invisible Oranges. Uh, I'm one of the producers and head programmer of Northwest Terror Fest in Seattle, Washington. Come on out sometime. We'd love to have you there. Yeah. Uh, I we'd, uh, well, I'm in for the listeners, but you too, man. Like, yeah, no, no. Got, I, I want to get out. a guest list anytime yeah. you want. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, and Mark too. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm the singer in a weird thrash band called Colony Drop. And speaking of weird thrash, because Colony Drop, we were just talking before we hit record here about uh, one of your guys' primary influences, you would say, would probably be Coroner. So um, what is it about, before we talk about the albums, what is it just about Coroner that appeals to you on a personal level and has influenced kind of the band and and, and some of just to, to kind of get things going? Well, so to, to be clear, I don't know that everyone in the band has listened to a ton of Coroner, but I know that me and one of our guitarists, Ben, have. Ben has a sick tri-skull uh, Coroner shirt. I'm actually very jealous of it. Um but I think, you know, this is a band I got into when I was late in high school, early in college. And um, to me, they were like the logical next step after you've like listened to all the good Megadeth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and maybe rest voice... in peace a lot when I listen to some Coroner. I'm like, okay, this is like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. And, and even yeah. like the earlier stuff that's more, you know, the the peace cells and, and so far, like just the the odd choices, just lots of odd choices. But go on. Sorry. I just I no. laugh at the thought I have. Hold on to that thought. We'll get into it. Um, <laughs> And also as someone who like liked Prague and part of what like got me into at the time bands like 80s Metallica. And what Mastodon was doing contemporaneously then and what like Opeth was doing contemporaneously then. So we're talking early 2000s for me mm. um, was the progressive rock aspect. And like the other thing about Corner is like when they were making records, people called them like the rush of thrash, like this incredibly tight and conceptual 
power trio. Um, and something about that really appealed to me. So yeah. I, I think that's where I started. And I, I think um, it's interesting that Voivod is sort of has the longer tail or the bigger fan base. You know, they've Voivod's kept going. Um, and Colin Drop takes a lot of influence from from Voivod too, like specifically like the sci-fi lyrical aspect and and the artistic direction um and the the d beats like there's more punk in voivod than there is in coroner i think um but uh i actually think coroner in general well how's this when coroner are firing on all cylinders they write better songs maybe that's like blasphemy for me to say but we'll get into it but like when coroner are at full power they are some of the best songwriters in metal i think that's my take i like it Bis zum Solo singe ich gerade nochmal, weil am Schluss bin ich erst so richtig und so weiter. Wenn du hast dabei sein und etwas zu sagen kannst, dann... Three one six level one seven zero overhead. 
because I think that the key to this band is the Death Cult demo. Mm, yep. We're playing something from Death Cult. Absolutely. Sick. I hope you're playing one of the songs where Tom G. Warrior is the front man. We are indeed. It is interesting to think of this band as his protégés. It's I, I I sort of think of them in a weird way. Um, you could think of them as like the enslaved to his mayhem. Mm. You know, the the young whippersnappers who want to do the same thing, but what if can play instrument good? You know what I mean? Yeah, great metaphor. Love it. Yeah. <laughs>
You know, you, you think of Tom G. Warrior as that like this progenitor of black and death metal, but what's the band he actually like gave their start? It's it's Corner. Yeah, I, that's wild to me. And um, like I, I think you can hear the shadow of Tomegatherian and Emperor's Return and Morbid Tales all over R.I.P. But like, it it's it's such an assured debut it's maybe not the most original thing but the songwriting's fucking great and they're playing fast and what what other eu thrash band was that virtuosic on their first record like fucking nobody like you guys have talked about sodom and i love sodom but like those first two sodom records that can't play their instruments like same thing with creator right like for that, for EU Thrash, Corner's the only band that, like, on album one, they were good. Yeah, right out the gates. Uh, right out the gates, indeed. Yeah. So, no, I, that's that's the thing I find most surprising, too, about R.I.P. is just, like you said, the confidence of, of such a young band, you know? Yeah. And, and they've got, like, a killer song on the, like, it start like, after the intro you get reborn through hate and like most bands never write a song as good as reborn through hate yep yep indeed sick in like thrash classic to me
band was formed by another guy, a singer. And he had the Rest in Peace record. And I was blown away. I love Ron's voice. I'm not sure brutal is the right word, but it's, it's just like uh, what we say in Sweden, it's uh, pondus, authority. You know what I mean? Like, this is how it is. That's how it sang. You just heard Reborn Through Hate from Corner's R.I.P., Arrogance in Uniform from the Doomsday News compilation, and then a pair of tunes from the Death Cult demo, Spectators of Sin and the Invincible. Along with our good friend Joseph Schaefer and uh, Tom G and Michael from Opeth and Lots of lots of little sound bites there and different interview clips and stuff. So, uh, yeah, good context, I think. And what you get with Reborn Through Hate is similar to what Mark kind of said with Arrogance and Uniform is you get corner. Like now we're now we're cooking, you know, um, I mean, right from that opening fret run uh, that you in the pinch harmonics you know you're in for kind of some unique, I guess, thrash metal, you know, neoclassical indeed. Um, kind of reminds me, this is where I kind of hear like the the killing peace cells kind of Megadeth kind of choices, I suppose. What were you going to say? Sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no, I was. this is completely, to me, it's like Ozzy era Randy Rhodes. Yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, and Randy Rhodes was definitely a neoclassical guy as well. You know, the stuff he was doing on Diary and, um, you know, Blizzard and things like that. Um Definitely some, it's like that mixed with like accept, like the mm. speed metal aspects of accept. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, that German foundation just of a lot of like the Swiss metal in general. You know, it was yeah. probably accept was kind of in their DNA, you know. But this is like, I think where they really kind of start to shine is where the the technicality never really outshines the, not to make another Soundgarden reference, but outshines um, the uh, songwriting. Like they, there's there's times definitely where there's less memorable stuff just because there's so much going on, but there's always that kind of propulsive thing going on with the the rhythm section that even when you know the guitars are just going on for days, there there's still something going on there. Well, and Marky's doing kind of weird some staccato kind of drumming that mixes yeah. in really well. You know, um, you got a pretty catchy chorus for for them. You know, I mean, Ron's vocals are very buried. And the production on RIP is kind of interesting, and we can definitely kind of talk about that. But um, it's yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's it almost seems intentionally like ducked. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know? and I'll I'll speak to that a little bit later. I have a comment that I wrote down somewhere, but I think there's a purpose behind that, and I'm curious if you you kind of think the same uh, when we get to it. But well, I think I the think... drumming on this is like it it has the same kind of nature that Away does with Voivod. Mm-hmm. That it yeah. doesn't seem overly complicated, but you know when you really sit, you know sit there and think about it, like this is like the pulse to the whole thing. Yeah, Marky's doing a lot of really interesting things that are subtle and not flashy necessarily, but I think like I, I, it almost makes sense why his like favorite band growing up was like ACDC because that's the yeah. drumming we always talk about that really like locks everything together, you know, and uh, has always been underrated i think by a lot of people in terms of like deceptively what... simple mm -hmm. but that brings adds the swing or the you know in their case more like the the hook or the um the bounce yeah the <laughs> for lack bounce. of a better term to it so i think here's what my and we're going to give a little backstory to them getting signed and, and all that stuff here in a moment but here's my overall i think thought on r.i.p 
I think that this is a band that is coming out the gate. And I think like a lot of young bands, they are, and I think this is the the same thing you can hear with like Megadeth on Killing Is My Business. They are trying to do everything at the, and all at once. And it doesn't mean that there's not good songs, yeah. but I think they got a lot to prove and they're like throwing all their chops into the table. And I think there's even like, um, I think in that documentary, Harris Johns, the producer of this, the kind of in-house guy for noise for a lot of stuff, he kind of says like they were trying too many ideas sometimes. Like they they want they were like pushing the limits like too much at times. And I think, you know, they're they're trying to flash off their their technique and, and stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of awesome. You know, like Hendrix did the same thing on some of his early stuff too, here and there. They're trying to, yeah, they're trying to stand out. And I think they pull that back a little bit more when you get to like punishment for decadence and some of that. Like totally. They refine some of that that like tendency, like we don't have to show off all the time. There's kind of a time and a place for it. There's like a balance to it. And so I love R.I.P. Um, you know, it's it's not my favorite of their records, but I think for a debut, it's pretty fucking good. And it has a lot of highlight moments to it. Do I like every song? Nah, yeah, like you said, some of it's not memorable, but I think, you know, Reborn Through Hate, When Angels Die and, uh, you know, Nosferatu the, the, for an instrumental is pretty fucking memorable, but um well it's yeah. like it's like mr scary yeah yeah exactly it's it's you know <laughs> yeah yeah and in thrash you know one of the conversations like joseph and i have at one point is just talking about how many like really memorable instrumentals in thrash were there outside of metallica you know it just wasn't really like a thing you you heard a lot in thrash bands you know no i mean I, and if you if you broaden it out to more just um i i, I guess hard rock at the time like like Satriani stuff. Yeah, sure. It yeah, was like, you know, was trying to do that a little bit. And um, yeah. I'm trying to think what else, uh, but it was all in that same kind of like, you know, musician minded kind of stuff. But to me, what's really interesting, because we'll hear two instrumentals before the end of this episode. And both of them, I think are essential to the records. They're not skippable. They're like, yeah. And not just like massive. Well, I think they're almost better than those other songs. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's almost like they're, they're, they like link songs together in really cool ways and they just do a lot of like framework. And like, you know, Coroner is at their best, like when they're just like kind of locked in with each other. And, you know, Ron's vocals, I guess we can kind of talk about this now. I, I don't know where the, the comment I made was, but, um, you know, Ron's vocals almost kind of provide, I guess, like a tapestry for the rest of the band to sort of paint on. And they're just sort of there. They're they're very hidden and buried in the mix, like like you kind of pointed out. And it's like they don't overpower, you know, like like Tom's vocals did, you know, uh, on the demo and stuff like that. And I think Tom it was just, up front with uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's a confidence, not a confidence thing necessarily, but like um like Tom and Celtic Frost, even in the demo where he's that he's singing on, yeah, he, he's very like aware of where the vocal should fit in the song. Mm -hmm. I think it took Ron a while to figure that out. I yeah, I agree, and I also think like they de-emphasize the vocals because it is more about musicianship. And with some bands that works, and some bands it doesn't. With Corner, it works. I don't know why. Well, because I think because he's if you had like a a dude like. Uh, Fuck, I don't even know, remember what his name is. The guy from Dream Theater who's more of an operatic vocalist. If you had a vocalist like that in Corner, I would hate it. Yeah, James Labrie. Yeah. It would be yeah. too much. Like yep. 
you don't need every single person to be at that level. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and like Ron and Ron's bass and obviously Tommy's guitar are like where a lot of the flash is. And mm-hmm. that's why Marky kind of being the foundation and locking everything down holds everything together. So it doesn't go off the rails or become too self-indulgent. And I think you're right. Oh. And, and Ron does the same thing with the vocals, like rein it in. So you're not overwhelmed. And I never feel like overwhelmed with coroner the way I am with like some tech death where it's just like, Jesus Christ, like I, I need to like pause because I don't even know what to concentrate on because so much shit's happening. Yeah. There's, and, I think there's very few bands that can actually pull that out. Like uh, the first Necrophagist record did that pretty well. Sure. We're just like a couple obscuras. I thought yeah, did a really nice job of that. I would you know? do that. Like, um, you know, the, what the hell, Gorgux, uh, what's the record? uh obscura obscura yeah there's like a handful but uh yeah it's it's definitely a balance you know like it's temptation to just like show off is always there you know and it's like reining that ego in for like the benefit of good songwriting and i think that's something that they like death too like they never really went yeah some people might say they went too far but for my taste i don't think they never went so far i was like ugh. i think chuck was such like he had such good songwriting chops. Like it was always about the song for him, even when yeah. he was doing crazy stuff. Like there's still like a great song in almost every little bit of, of what death's doing, you know? So, yeah. So I, I, th- I do think that's kind of the, the key to all this. So to kind of set the scene up for RIP, I suppose, um, basically Tom G recommended three bands to, to noise records to the, uh, the guy that was in charge. And I have his name, uh, I forget his first name. It's Walter Bach is, is the owner forgot to write his first name down but um he you know the guy that was running noise records him and tom have a pretty contentious a relationship and that's kind of laid out in the book like they kind of hate each other um well even with like the those reissues that came out like i don't know how many years ago that was now five or six years ago that all the noise cultic frost reissues the doubles the they did like the creator stuff as well yeah like, tom disavowed all that for for some personal reason yeah. And when you read the book, you kind of get a sense of that. And uh, it's not the, you know, the, that's an interesting conversation to have for, for <laughs> other things. But a lot of it had to do with the tours. A lot of it had to do with the funding, the marketing, um, you know, probably some royalties back. and rights. Well, and a lot of the pushback against some of the cool stuff that like Tom wanted to do that like noise didn't want to do and, and, and some of that. But um, well, Tom's such a, a visionary as far as the stuff's concerned that it's he doesn't want to really compromise. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it make it totally makes sense. And I completely know where he's coming from, but yeah. Back then, like, that was even a harder thing to do. Yep. But basically Tom went to him and recommended he signed three bands and he said, coroner, Voivod and watchtower and noise signed all three. So, you know, good on Tom, you know, for having like the vision of seeing like young bands that were doing interesting things. And all three of those bands are doing really interesting, progressive things, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, essentially they, you know, the funny part was, is before RIP, before they went in to record, um, they didn't really love Tom's vocal style. And so they asked them to sing on RIP and Ron even jokes in the documentary. He goes, I don't know why I had the balls to do it. He goes, but I asked if Tom could sing, but sing differently. <laughs> Tom just kind of like laughed. And I, I don't think Ron like knew celtic frost that well yet or like the 
you know, like the, the, because he was the one guy that didn't go on the tour with them. Right. You know, so Ron was like the wrong guy to probably have that conversation. But uh, basically Tom was like, yeah, I think you guys need to figure out what you're going to do with your vocals. And that's where Ron kind of steps up and realizes he could do it. And um, basically from that point, they get signed to noise. Um, They're sent to Berlin to record with Harris Johns. And, um, you know, basically Johns even says like he, he tests his limits were tested because the band was trying to squeeze as many notes as possible into each song. And Tommy even referred to as refers to RIP as musical puberty, where like you've got it <laughs> on your shoulder and you're trying to prove yourself and, and, you know, you're kind of maybe trying too hard in, in certain moments, you know, um, the cover was taken. It was a picture of a grave from a Zurich cemetery uh, so that's kind of cool. And that was sort of all uh, Marky, who was kind of in charge of all that. The problem becomes that they were scheduled for like 12 days uh, to record it and end up taking 31 days and twice as much money. So they're basically starting in the hole right away. And yeah. that's going to be, I mean, a lot of metal bands of that era. I think they even talked about like how nowadays, like, you know, like they didn't even read the contract. They just signed it. They don't care. You know, they're a young band. They're just happy to be signed by somebody, you know? So like none of those bands had a business sense kind of thing. Well, and you also at that point, I don't think you knew, you didn't know all the like tribulations that all these other bands went through with the labels. You just assumed that, oh yeah, this is how you do it. Sure. And who knows how much Tom told them about noise at that point or how contentious the relationship was when he recommended them to sign, you know? Sure. Um, yeah, and so uh, they wanted three urns put on the back of the uh, CD instead of uh, band photos, and so that's why you have the three urns on the back, and I think they end up getting the urns from uh, one of the guys in the band's dad Like was hooked up with like a funeral home of some sort, so they got to borrow the urns. So if you look at that, it's kind of interesting. Usually funeral homes and borrowing, those two words don't come together. Yeah, don't go together. You know, that's the, a plot line of Lebowski, and that's why they get the coffee can. Um, and then they play their first concert ever and their first concert ever is with creator and Celtic frost that they have to open for. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> pretty, pretty nice debut. Yeah. And basically the, the logo was inspired by motorhead and, um, oh, they totally. to, to create that. And the, they even say like, they have the idea like this logo would look cool on the back of like a jean jacket or something like that, you know? And then Do they um, go into anything about how like the, the OB strip kind of like style of every album was set up. Uh, no, not, not really. Not that I kind of know of um, necessarily, but then they, they did add the triple skull came in a little bit later too, you know, with the names on it and stuff like that. And that becomes kind of their defining. Yeah, Cause of- all their covers have like a certain, I guess after, after RIP, everything has like a certain kind of consistency to it. Yeah, well, actually, I, I will talk a little bit about uh, the Punishment for Decadence um, cover here in a second. So um, I'm going to turn right back to the Damn the Machine briefly to just kind of talk about the, them getting signed and, and some of the stuff that's kind of going on with that. But um, it says, when Edelman and Vitrelli returned to Zurich, sorting out the singer situation was the first item to address. Still without a proper vocalist, the duties eventually fell to Royce, who, was, who reluctantly accepted a position he would never seat in the band. And while Royce's vocals never quite found their place in the grand scheme of things for Coroner, i.e. they were often buried quite deep in the mix to the point where he was occasionally inaudible, it completed the band's lineup and got them the attention of noise. 
After sending a crude rehearsal room demo that was recorded on a ghetto blaster, Coroner was offered a contract by Walter Bach in early 1987. Usually what I do nowadays, I have a lawyer and I give him the contract, says Notes Petrelli. He says, okay, maybe watch this point and that sort of stuff. Back then, we didn't even read the fucking thing. Nowadays, anyone can record a CD, no problem. Back then, it wasn't possible without a record contract. It just wasn't possible to make a record. We just signed and, well, it was it was just awesome for us. Corner's first album become, uh, became R.I.P., which was recorded at the ever-faithful Music Lab Studios in Berlin with Harris Johns comprising 12 songs with a whopping five instrumentals, two of which are the genetic, are generically titled intro and outro. R.I.P. couldn't have been more different on a technical level from their fellow countrymen in Celtic Frost, the band they were, often most, uh, they were most often compared to during the early stages of their career. Royce's bellows were kept in line, only peeking their head via the chorus on Reborn Through Hate. Fisher's guest vocals helped too. Yeah, I forgot Tom's like on, uh, I think he's on Reborn Through Hate. He's like singing back up on that song. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, let's see. Lost my place. Uh, and bro, uh, and the brooding coma. So in turn, Corner's debut was largely based upon the band's athletic rhythm section and Vitrelli's frenetic guitar runs. When I listen to it now, it sounds very funny to me. Says the guitarist. For the time, it was great. We came out of the studio and then we had this album in our hands, and it was like, whoa, we did it. We felt like. This will be an album of the month in all the magazines. It was not. That was started with the third album, he laughs again. It was great. Harris did what he could. We didn't play anything twice, and that's why the sound is a little muddy, and he had to put a lot of reverb on stuff because sometimes the playing wasn't great. If I listen to other bands from that time, it's the same. It sounds like shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, shit or not, R.I.P.'s pretty like i said self pretty assured debut full of you know vigor and showmanship and and stuff like that so i think he's pretty hard on himself but you know for 1987 debut it's it's a pretty good metal record you know um you know there's some fat to be trimmed for sure i think but uh um yeah and then we so we're going to get into a, basically a two songs more from rip then we'll kind of start setting up punishment for decadence which is the last record we're going to cover here in part one and um you know, for me, when angels die is is kind of proof of this. It's it's kind of got brash songwriting. It's a solo that knocks most bands off their pedestal, um, but it doesn't sacrifice that kind of cold technicality. Um, you know, it's got a cool ass fucking section from three minutes to three thirty that I think is like one of the highlights of the whole record. But like I said, you know, you can't really hear Ron's voice, and, and there's a few other things kind of happening, but. Uh, Oh, it's a, it's a kind of pretty standard tune, but I think it, it's kind of representative of the best ideas that Corner has when they sort of put these things together. Well, it's um, almost like the the way they're riffing too. It's um, or playing the guitar. It's almost like a tremolo riff hmm. at certain points in it, and like the with like Slayer rhythm section. Yeah, I could kind of. But I got a lot of and uh, yeah, the and there's like a almost like Thorns Mayhem kind of thing happening in it as well. There's a lot a lot more like like proto black metal shit in this that I, than I ever really thought about before. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's like, because black metal is obviously not known for the, the musicianship. So is it like more like the way that the rhythms are held down or just like the, you know, I'm feeling more with a, with guitar stuff where they do like some kind of like sweep or some type of, you know, like picking thing where it's like some atonal picking that that makes me feel uh, the kind of black metal vibe. I wonder if that's coming more from like some atonal, like kind of classical stuff, you know? Well, I'm sure. I mean, I think, I think most, if you look at black metal, it's mostly based off of classical ideas. 
Yeah, that's true. You and know? kind of like, you know, like turning them on their heads or, um, you know, it's like, like note progressions that are, that are very like emotionally evocative. I think that's mm -hmm. very, that's very classical. Well, even like John Cal, you know, who got his start playing with like Lamont Young and some of those like kind of atonal, um, Tony mm -hmm. Conrad, some of those guys, you know, like he's coming out of classical music and then bringing it into, you know, Velvet Underground and, and doing some of the weird stuff that he does there with the viola and, and some mm -hmm. of that. So, yeah. It's yeah. about, yeah, it's about some, like they're, they're taking that musicianship or the, um, you know, some of the, the more classical ideas, but then really just kind of like amp, like what everybody was doing with metal in the eighties was, you know, trying to push things to that next level. Sure. Sure. And I guess like, how do you, you know, you mentioned Randy Rhodes and you mentioned like Mr. Scary and some of that kind of stuff. Like, would you put any of the stuff Tommy's doing in like the, the camp that like a Lynch or some of those guys are doing, or do you see like a noticeable difference in like their kind of styles or approaches to soloing and things like that? I think it's much less, um, like Lynch, like Lynch and Ying Vei and a lot of these guys, like these guys are definitely soloists. He seems more of like a, I don't know. It's not, it's not like upfront like that to me when I, when I'm hearing it, it seems more like a little bit more um, in service of the song than being like the centerpiece of the song. Yeah. I never get the feeling that like, they're going to put a spotlight on Tommy in the middle of a solo and turn all the lights off. No, like with like Lynch <laughs> or, or somebody like that. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. You know, mm -hmm. people who have listened to the show for long enough know like we're fucking, you know, diehard docking guys, but for sure. Uh, Tommy's tasteful. You know, he's like a tasteful fucking technical guy, you know, and well, uh, he's about the band and not, you know, his own, uh, you know, his own self-aggrandizement or whatever he like. He's it's always about the songs. Sometimes it's not as uh, uh, catchy as, you know, I might like, but it's, it's always seems to be in service of the songs. I think one thing that's interesting that when you said that I had a light bulb that went off because I think one of the things that's unique about Dokken is George wasn't writing the songs. Don was. Mm -hmm. Jeff Pilson. They were the guys writing the songs. And so they're like the anchors of like everything in terms of like the catchiness and the hooks and things like that. And George, yeah. Of, yeah, George just kind of came in and like worked around that or like he had his like, okay, you know, like here's where I fit my solo. And then the rest of it, like, you know, you guys kind of do. And I think, you know, say what you might want about like Eddie Van Halen or Van Halen as a band. Eddie wrote the songs. And so Eddie has hooks that are a little bit more natural to him. And he can weave a lot of his leads in more seamlessly throughout the songs, especially in those early Van Halen records. Yeah. I think that's more like what Tommy's doing because Tommy is the guy writing the songs. So like Tommy and Ron are the songwriters. Marky just shows up and, and plays once they've kind of written the songs and stuff. And so I think like to be the primary lead player, but also the primary songwriter, it means you have to be conscious of good song structure for the guitars to fit in and not just like masturbatory sections where like everybody just does their solos, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's a, there's, there's more uh, subtlety to the whole thing. Cause I think Lynch is a great player, but, um, I think, and I think that, that, uh, Don's a great, Don Dawkins, a great songwriter, yeah. but I think they're better when they're bouncing off each other and they're fighting with each other. They're in, a, in opposition. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cause like, okay, here's the thing that Don, this is the riff that Don came up with. Like, okay, I'm going to make this seem like it's fucking retarded. I'm going to make yeah. this way more like 
catchy and throw harmonics in it and do all this other stuff like that that push and pull really makes some of that stuff like some of that music magical yeah and i think that's like uh you know you're lennon and mccartney kind of stuff too but like i think of like 70s scorpions where you had Ule. i don't think anybody's ever said that dokken was like you know the beatles and i appreciate no. a lot of that <laughs> I just meant like those two guys fought and some of their fighting is what created like the best Beatles songs, right? I think like contentious, yeah. Like you've got a lot of big ideas with a couple different, you know, personalities. I think that makes some of the most interesting music. And push push off each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm thinking of like the rhythmic guitar approach of like uh, you know, is it is it uh Schenker, um, the other Schenker, Matthias, um mm-hmm. is like a Uli, right? Uli's like a lead guy. Yeah. And Mateus is like trying to serve the song. And I thought when those guys were at their like peak, like you're getting some of the best Scorpions records, you know, the seventies and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So um, yeah, it's, it's that kind of dichotomy, you know, pushing against each other like magnets or something. So. Um, oh, Mateus, it was, uh, well, Rudolph and Michael and then. Oh, it was Rudolph. Yeah. That's yeah Ma- and Mateus was, I forget what the hell his last name was, but. Jab or something like Mateus. Jab. Mateus, yeah, Jab. He came in after um after after, uh, yeah exactly yeah he was the good he's still with them right now okay yo sorry i got my scorpions guitarist a little mixed up there all right I, anybody named rudolph I, i've got a i know who they are yeah you guys have a club <laughs> you have like a little private private email that you guys kind of share with each other oh especially this time of year yeah we gotta we gotta keep sure. it going you gotta bond together is this like a you know you you kind of roll your eyes because all the the Rudolph the Red nosed Reindeer stuff that's going to be thrown your way or have you just sort no of nobody I haven't had any of those jokes since I was in uh, elementary good. school. That's good as you should you should yeah. have now if anybody says how do you sp- you know ask me to spell my name I just said just like the reindeer. Oh, like, uh, okay, is that with an F or with a PH? Um, I just get. For me, it's people that put the L in my last name. So instead of Hundy, I get Hunley. I don't know where. Hunley? Oh, that's the number one mistake. (laughs) I believe there was Is it because the Midwest accent makes people think you say Hunley? I don't know. I think there there was a, there's been a a major league baseball player. I think his name was Todd Hunley. And then. um, Oh, okay. That that always sucks when someone says your name. And I know that um, Mr. Apple, uh, one of our old science teachers back in middle school, he used haven't to heard me that Hot name Hunley. in a while. Yeah, there you go. He's called me Hot Rod Hunley. So I was like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're clever, but uh, it is what it is. But he only knew that Hot Rod Pete Hundy was a was a guy. As the same, and I didn't really like share that knowledge. And my dad was like, you know, race car driver. So he just yeah. he looked into my soul, Mister Apple did, and, and extracted the, my true nature of who I was. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then we sort of end uh, the RIP session with uh, the intro, which is kind of a nice. I, I wish they just merged these things together. I don't know why they have to like track these differently, but it's kind of dumb. But it is what it is. It's really one piece, and so yeah. I'll just call it Nosferatu. But um. It reprises the same, like, you know, musical ideas, too. Like, I don't know why they mm-hmm. break it up. Yeah. Uh, but just an incredible centerpiece instrumental. And, you know, to for a band to have vital instrumentals on multiple records, it's just, you know, I mean, Metallica did it, you know. But theirs are different. Theirs are more like these um, meditation. Which, which big four band does this remind you of the most? Nosferatu? Yeah. Hmm. Oh. I, or not big 100%. four, sorry, big five. 
Big five. Well, that's interesting. You just said big five, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. All right, let me let me say my piece and, and okay. see if you agree or disagree. I said it's you know in a lot of ways this might be kind of a vulgar display of the power of the band in some ways you know in terms of like showing off all their stuff, but they level it out in a way that that makes it sort of like it just works. And I said that this reminded me the most of Megadeth's wake up dead um, where they're like wake up dead waits for like three minutes before vocals finally come in and they're doing all these exercises of different sort of styles and tempos and rhythms and things. Yeah. And you also get, I also hear a little bit, and I, I know you're not the world's biggest Halloween fan, but on keeper, the rings part one, the, the long song Halloween has this really like incredible guitar solo that has like these multiple sort of movements in it. And I get a little vibe of that, but okay. I have this feeling that you're about to say something about Alex Skolnick perhaps, because you just yes. said big five instead of big four. And I never thought Testament, but, but go ahead. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's as soon as I heard, it, I was like, this reminds me of Testament the way, like the, the note selection, because Testament was always more of a, like kind of a major chord sounding like more posy you know yeah. thrash band and skolnick yeah. was definitely of that more that previous uh generation like he wasn't necessarily a thrash soloist he seemed more of like a hard rock soloist mm -hmm. um, but that was definitely i was just like you know? yeah total total like because he was like you know this this wunderkind of a what 14 year old or whatever when he was playing you know at uh with the legacy yeah but before they became testament, yeah. what was the what was the place in uh, san francisco uh it wasn't rubies uh, oh i know exactly what you're talking about the place where exodus was always playing um, yeah ruthie's was it ruthie's, ruthie's. Yeah. yeah ruthie's yeah um but I, I was just like jesus this sounds like something off the the legacy i was like oh okay it just has that type of like you can see that now that you say it yeah yeah, that more, you know, Ingve, more, more, more like class. Cause that was always, you know, looking back, Testament always seemed like they were more uh, like they've had more of like a foot in the 70s somehow. Mm -hmm. I think maybe why I picked up Wake Up Dead is because the drums on Nosferatu are a lot more staccato and active, which oh, they completely yeah. themselves. Yeah. And, and that's a, you know, like kind of uh, why wake up, you know, like all that, those kind of weird things that were sort of happening there. Yeah. Um, no, I totally get that too. He has a little bit more momentum than some of the, like what, who is it? Louis Clemente. You know, he was always kind of like, eh, no, well, he, he was the wet fart of the band. Like he, yeah, he, he never really the, brought much to the party. <laughs> yeah. When Testament started getting better drummers, like when Lombardo played on a record and, and uh, Bostoff and then some of the, the, it was like, okay. Yeah, now this band. Yeah, and Gene. And, yeah. Yeah, Hogland and stuff too. So um, so as we kind of wrap up, let me sort of set up punishment for decadence here. And I'm actually turning to another book uh, from our old friend Jeff Wagner. And this is Mean Deviation, Four Decades of Progressive Heavy Metal. And uh, he talks about Corner a little bit in it, as one would. And so this is kind of the setup for punishment for decadence. And they're going to talk a little bit about the cover here as well. So uh, you kind of had some some comments about the covers kind of being seamless. So here we go. Coroner came to the attention of the metal underground via 1986's death cult, a demo tape immediately noteworthy for its guest vocals by Celtic frost, uh, Tom Fisher. 
I should say Celtic Frost because that's how Jeff says it. That's right? how he wants to say it, but it's yeah, not. For reading from his book, I should do Jeff the honors of saying Celtic <laughs> Frost. Um, the members of Coroner had roadied for their fellow Swiss pals, and Frost music had apparently rubbed off. The tape's four songs took a Celtic Frost, Celtic Frost meets Merciful Fate approach, though not very successfully at that early stage. No death cult songs made it to the band's later releases. By 1987, Coroner claimed a more individual sound with their RIP debut. The back cover showed the members' names engraved on cremation urns, and along with the album title, the band made a peculiarly backwards introduction. RIP showed massive improvements from the demo, injecting classically tinged melodies into guitar lines of frenetic speed that always maintained flow. Still, RIP was only a glimpse into what made this band so treasured to adventurous listeners in the thrash audience. Coroner's next albums really made heads spin. The next year's punishment for decadence showed a deadlier, tighter, more technical coroner. Their acrobatic four and six string uh, scale raping again pointed to toward the symphonic uh, influence of classical music, still a novel trait in that era of metal. Absorb mixed difficult stop-start rhythms with an effortless fluidity that became Coroner's trademark. Maskell Jackal, uh, what well, Mask Jackal, sorry, was memorable yet unpredictable, balancing key and chord changes between sinister groove and instrumental prowess. Arclight was a busy, eventful instrumental that featured as much melody as intensity. It was their equivalent of Rush's La Villa Strangiato, in that the band displayed their ability to tell a musical story without vocals. The rest of the songs maintained a similarly high standard, winning praise and notoriety instantly from the kind of metal fans that craved a more intellectual headbang. The European cover of Punishment for Decadence featured Port de uh, Infer, uh, which translates to Hell's Gates, I believe. Um, a sculpture by 19th century French artist Auguste Rodin, best known for his iconic statue, The Thinker. The black strip running along the side of the album cover introduced what would be a visual constant for every coroner release thereafter. With an arty, shadowy picture of the band on the back cover and the song titles such as Arc Light and Shadow of a Lost Dream, it was all pretty highbrow stuff for a thrash band. The U.S. Office of Noise Records, however, felt the artwork would fly over the heads of the average fan. They replaced the original design with something deemed, quote, more metal, a skeleton playing a bone with a violin bow. <laughs> this was a compromise in Corner's vision, something that would not bow, uh, bow to, they would not bow to again. Drummer and conceptualist Marquise Markey, a.k.a. Marcus Edelman, stated that the record company, quote, thought it wouldn't sell very well because the metal audience would think it's another kind of music. That's pretty stupid. I think we should all be more open to other things. I would be much happier if thrash people also listen to other stuff. It's stupid to listen to one music direction. I'm into jazz music and 60s and 70s stuff. I'm a big fan of the Doors. To be sure, Coroner's love of classic rock resulted in some unlikely cover choices for a thrash band, such as Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze and the Beatles' I Want You. She's so happy. So. <laughs> but that's the story of uh, the controversy with the cover. And from what I've kind of told... They actually intended the violin playing skeleton to just be like inside the CD. And without their knowledge in America, they started releasing it with this kind of skeleton in the violin. And I've seen some reissues that have that cover before, which is unfortunate. Um, do you know which one? I'm sure you have the right one, right? With the sculpture on it. That's the one you ordered. Uh, I don't remember now. I'm guessing. I got to imagine at this point, there's no way they're releasing the, the shitty violin. Oh, yeah, scale. yeah. That's the one I got, for sure. Yeah. Okay, good. That's good. I, I, I mean, the it. other one I I feel is like the classic one, but 
The one with the skeleton on it, because that's the only one I've ever saw before that. That okay. See, the version I have has the right cover, so I've okay. I've had one. Now my see version the one I got is let's see. So I have a Japanese version of this actually. Um, so mine is a double. So mine is no more color and punishment for decadence on the same album, and it was a Japanese release. That's the way I picked. No, it. I've, yeah, I've got the original cover on the new one. Okay, that's good. I, I was so just my, looking at my. Uh, I got it on Amazon for oh, for pretty okay. cheap. I was just looking, at, and then uh, I got some. Uh, I can't say what I got on here for Christmas oh. gifts, but oh shit! Okay. Oh, just because they might listen to the episode. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. So you know. So now we get to punishment for decadence and um, this is kind of the last record we're going to kind of be playing. So we'll sort of introduce it a little bit, then we'll come back and uh, kind of say our goodbyes and, and such here and, and talk about the last kind of couple songs. But basically we shift up just like Wagner sort of said, you know, you get a proper single, you get a video for uh, MTV with uh, mass Jackal, uh, which kicks the album off uh, along with absorbed, which we open the whole episode with. So that you get this one, two punch of absorbed going into mass Jackal and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a good way to start your albums. In fact, I would argue side A of this record where the majority of the songs we're playing is pretty fucking fierce. I mean, you lose something with side B because you got the cover song and then some other kind of bullshit that doesn't really work. But, um, man, you go right from, uh, I've got the line up here. I mean, you go right from, uh, absorbed into mass jackal into arc light into skeleton for uh, on your shoulder into sudden fall and it's just like boom boom just lining the fucking dominoes up and just fucking killing it so um were you familiar with mass jackal did you know this song before you bought corner did you see the video or anything like that just out of curiosity oh no no not at all okay so what got you to buy corner just so the noise records thing or a recommendation or anything like that uh like like today or or like when i no, back in the CDs. day yeah when you bought uh, this it was day. just like it was one of those things it was uh you know we basically had we had celtic frost we had crocus we had some ale yeah. and uh I, th- I i i think from my recollection i bought it sight unseen i was like okay this is you know it's on noise heard enough about switzerland the like you know yeah. celtic frost connection like okay i just need to buy this stuff sure okay yeah i i don't know where i even heard of corner from i just had it like i just like one day i thought I, the I, guys looked fucking weird the guys looked really severe in okay. like the old uh press photos too like like jesus christ like these guys look like they're fucking hard <laughs> i definitely i think picked this up i must have picked this up used but it's like i said this japanese kind of double version that came out uh i think in the late 90s i'm not sure when my version came out but i've had it forever uh, and that was the only corner I had for years. You know, it wasn't until recently I picked up R.I.P. and Grin. Um, yeah. So, but what's well, funny? They took the the whole like you know Japanese like Obi strip, except mm-hmm. they switched it to the right side instead of the left side. Yeah, and I think it kind of cool stayed consistent with it. I always dug that. Yeah, I do. I like when a, a band has kind of like a an aesthetic kind of thing that they're sort of doing across the board. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm trying to think of other metal bands that really like lock that down. I mean, to some extent, like Cathedral with the the Patchet stuff, that was always kind of like mm-hmm. a, a thing that sort of strung them together. But um, I'm trying to think of like 
how you organize and lay out like a CD like that, where you have like the the layout being the same way, not just like the the cover artist being the same. Can't think of who else has done. Yeah, because I don't know if they use the same cover artist more than once. No, they definitely but, don't. But they managed to keep that whole kind of like instead of a big logo across the top, it's like it's all in that little strip. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to hear Mass Jackal, and uh, all I wrote about this, I said it's less showy than the RIP numbers. The, they're not insecure, uh, and they're not overplaying as much, I think. Um, you know, if you had to criticize anything about the debut, that's my my critique of RIP. Um, I just said it's the peace sells to RIPs killing is my business. It's a more okay. uh, assured, more confident, more catchy, um, brighter production is really good on this, as you heard on Absorbed at the beginning of the episode. Um, more songwriting craft, you know, Tommy's still at the peak of his powers, obviously with, uh, you hear three or four different types of guitar styles in mass Jackal alone, you know, um, and they're nicely balanced and technical and, and blended together and catchy all at the same time. What I notice, and I think what makes punishment for decadence, like so much of an improvement is I think Ron and Marky get better. You, this is mm -hmm. like where you see these guys growing the most. Tommy was already great. We knew that. But it's like the other guys kind of start to close the gap on Tommy. And you're like, okay, this is a fully formed power trio now. Like, fuck, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like the Rush debut, right? It's good, but not until like when Neil Peart comes in, you're like, oh, now, you know, we're closing that's the gap. That's where it locks in. Yeah, it locks in and stuff. So, um, yeah. So I think that that's that's pretty cool. I do like the crowd samples that are thrown in at the end. That's kind of yeah. a cool thing you can hear a lot of back in the, the 80s, you know? So... Um, so we're going to hear this, uh, Mass Jackal, you'll hear Schaefer talk a little bit about this record. You'll hear Mike, Michael from Opeth talk a little bit about this as well. And then we're going to sort of end with a, a sudden fall. And we'll talk about that song when we come back uh, to sort of set uh, the, the end of the episode up. So we're going to hear Tom G talk a little bit about his feelings about early coroner and some of his relationship. Then we're going to hear When Angels Die uh, and Nosferatu from R.I.P. Then we'll hear Mass Jackal and Sudden Fall from 1988's Punishment for Decadence. So I guess, uh, you know, alongside Hellhammer and Frost, there were, were there any other bands around that time in the early to mid 80s from Switzerland that were causing any waves before we get to, say, like Corner or no? Not, re not really in the first half of the 80s. Even the original Corner, uh, which was originally a five piece band, they, they, they basically played far more commercial music. Gotcha. Uh, but starting in 85, halfway through the 80s, uh, some people in the Swiss scene started waking up and Corner were, were one of those bands and also started playing heavier, thrashier. But the first five years of the 80s, no, there was nothing. I'm, I'm not saying that to make us bigger than we were, but I mean, I, I was there. There was really, there was nothing. And, and we were actually ridiculed in Switzerland for playing this kind of music. And, and I'm not tell, saying ridiculed by normal people. I'm, I'm telling, you know, we were ridiculed by metal fans. And that's how isolated this kind of music was in the first half of the 80s in Switzerland. Sure. So when you get to Corner, where do they sort of fit into the equation and story? Because they're even kind of connected to you guys, correct? With uh, him being a guitar tech and, and or doing some some work with Frost to some extent? Well, we, we were friends with, with uh, the original corner, the five-piece corner, and then they fell apart, and the drummer, Marky, reformed them into a three-piece that was far heavier, doubtlessly uh, influenced by us, and I'm not just saying that arrogantly, but Marky and I were very close friends at the time and hung out all the time. And I know Marky was also into punk and into, 
into Venom and things like that. And I guess he, he reformed Corner to do something like Hellhammer or Celtic Frost. Uh, and uh, he was very lucky. By that time, it was a little easier to find musicians to play that heavy. We had a much harder time in, in Hellhammer. Uh, and uh, it just so happened that we needed a row crew for uh, various concerts and then our first U.S. tour in, in the summer of 86. And uh, I had helped the newly formed three-piece corner in the studio. I had, uh, had co-produced their demo. I had written the lyrics and they couldn't find a singer. So I did the lead vocals on the demo. And, and then I helped them shop the demo to record companies. And they kind of repaid us by, by uh, Marky becoming our drum tech and Tommy becoming my guitar tech for quite a while. Yeah. Of course, it, was, it also had benefits for them because at every concert day, they were with Celtic Frost as, as uh, our crew. They were able to network with the people that, that we knew. And we, of course, we, I went on stage with corner t-shirts. We, we handed out corner demos and so on. So it wasn't just work for them. It also helped them to get a foothold in the scene. Do you kind of look at their sort of evolution and success kind of like a, a proud metal parent, almost in a way, where you're like, oh, you know, like you kind of help give them a little bit of a push and kind of watch them sort of grow and evolve and become more technical and, and change and stuff? Initially, initially I did, and then there was an interview sometime a few years after the demo <clears throat> when they had already released one or two albums, and then they, in the interview they said, well, we're taking the throne of extreme metal, of Swiss extreme metal, away from Celtic Frost. Mm. And I didn't find that so funny, of course. Yeah. But it was, it was probably the same effect as we had with Venom a few years earlier, you know, first, first. Yeah. They are your parents, and then you become competitive yourself. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, we, we our friendship actually survived this eventually, and, and uh, we are still friends to this day. Well, that's good to hear. Do you have uh, any opinions on like uh, favorite records from them, or anything that you've been like maybe the most impressed? Uh, you know, since they kind of you know became what a lot of people thought of as like I guess quote unquote the Swiss you know thrash scene. You know, because you guys were really yeah. Doing your own well, thing way outside of thrash. Well, I obviously really like the first uh, first album, and I also like Grin. I think Grin is actually uh, quite an accomplishment for the band. You could really see how they progress from album to album. It's amazing. Yeah, that's a record that I've recently reappreciated. Um, I saw them actually perform. Speaking of Maryland, they played uh, Grin or one of the songs from Grin, one of the longer songs at the at maryland death fest and i was like whoa this is a great song and i went back and really you know because that record often gets kind of slagged right it kind of was like oh that's you know where coroner made a misstep or something but in a lot of ways it's one of the more interesting things i think they ever did you know exactly
So when you get to the next two, which I kind of see as companion pieces with Punishment and No More Color, how do you put those in context to what was going on in Thrash in America and Europe in the late 80s? Like you mentioned Megadeth, but like was anybody contemporaries with where Coroner got to on those two records? Uh, I mean, if you want to be like a super deep nerd, you could think of Mekong Delta, like in a lot of the neoclassical, like like the gesturing toward classical music mm-hmm. that is in it. Um, I think it, when it comes to thrash, Mekong Delta is it as far as that goes. Um, you know, obviously like Voivod killing technology, I think was kind of like a gauntlet down to people to say like, you know get on our level in terms of like concept and also like tightness um so i think both of those are interesting companions with related to megadeth also um and uh, you know I, I you you think about sepultura i think also in terms of a, like a powerhouse drummer mm. you know yeah. um Mar- Marky Mark, God, I can't believe his fucking name is Marky Mark. <laughs> it's weird to say, like I know. Marky Mark. Um, he's awesome. You know, he's he's maybe not a Dave Lombardo or uh or an Igor Cavalera in that he's like reinventing the instrument as he's playing it, but to me like punishment for decadence is is him like absolutely saying i'm one of the best thrash drummers there is i think um and and i guess i'd also say you know as good as r.i.p is and i think it's actually probably a little more consistent than punishment for decadence and normal no more color um side a of of punishment for decadence is insane yeah uh fucking jesus fucking christ absorbed is an amazing song masked jackal is probably better than reborn through hate i think masked jackal is the first like perfect coroner song
I watched that video like a thousand times, I think. You know, just seeing Ron do the you know, on the bass. It's like, how can you play that like that on the bass? So I've been I've been a fan ever since.
You just heard Sudden Fall, Mass Jackal, Nosferatu, and When Angels Die from uh, Coroner's R.I.P. record in 87, and those last two tunes from Punishment for Decadence in 1988. So, uh, yeah, heard from Joseph uh, and Tom G. there at the very beginning, um, and then Michael kind of geeking out a little bit about his love of uh, Mass Jackal and the video and how much he watched it uh, when it was on. Um, <laughs> Sudden Fall. Um, this was a sneaky tune for me because I already knew absorbed and mass jackal pretty well. And then when I was kind of looking for some of the deeper cuts on the record, I was kind of, I put on sudden fall and I was like, okay, you know, it's a lot of cool parts just sort of flowing in and stuff. Some cool chant choruses kind of happening there, you know, Marky's drums kind of overpowering. And then all of a sudden the song kind of cascades in this like cool little melodic part around the two minute mark. And Tommy's doing some cool texture shit. You get a nice little emotive solo. And then all of a sudden the Exodus part comes in. I was like, what the fuck? Like I haven't heard Coroner do like that. Like toxic waltz, like mosh, like holy fucking catchy. And I was like, damn, I want more of this. You know, like I love the technical stuff, but like when they like lock into just these like cool, like groovy parts, yeah, it, it's fun, you know, and I was like, damn, so hidden gem for me, Sudden Fall. I mean, I know it's not like a song that gets talked about as much as maybe Mass Jackal or Arclight or, or whatever, but I, I I was I'm a kind of fan of this tune. I don't know if you, you know, if you have like sneaky songs uh, that, that kind of caught up to you, but that, that's definitely one that I enjoy. Well, I was getting uh, I definitely got some of the uh, the Exodus vibes or the, yeah. the big mosh, you know, everybody like you know hold hands and run around a circle kind of thing and there's something marky does in the drums where he's like riding it in this weird way where i'm like god i want more of that like that is like whatever that technique he's doing there i don't know if it's double bass or just like he's just hitting this oscillating thing that yeah i think it was like a the chug with a double bass which is i think very exodus and it reminds me, you remember like how, uh, not the comic book guy, but the 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 Judas Priest drummer, uh, Alan Moore, mm-hmm. um, on Sad Wings, how some of the, like the weird drum production, how he like really propels certain parts of those songs, you know? Yeah. That's kind of the vibe I get here. It's different. I mean, it's not, he's not doing the cymbal shit that you hear on Judas Priest, but like that just propulsive energy just really works for me on Sudden Fall. So um, totally. I also got, um, the little kind of like not necessarily acoustic, but the the mellower interlude reminded me of like Remember Tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's that, very, that kind of like era, which Remember Tomorrow is very like Judas Priest, you know, yeah, sad wings kind of stuff. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, it's just there's a lot happening from like maybe in my wheelhouse of the kind of things I like on this. I'm not saying it's like the best corner song, but it just yeah. kind of fits my aesthetic, if you will. You know. Mm-hmm. All right, as we start to wrap up things here, there's one last paragraph uh, from the the Damn the Machine uh, Story of Noise Records book that just talks a little bit about punishment. Um, It said, R.I.P. may not be as auspicious as Vitrelli thinks, but the ensuing punishment for decadence is where the band hit their stride. A switch to Skytrack Studio brought greater clarity to the band's rigid thrash sound as evidenced by the maddenly, maddenly complex classical action found on Arclight. The band's sole hit, if you will, is also found on Punishment, Mass Jackal, a song that remains a live mainstay to this day, even warranting the band's first video clip. Elsewhere, tinges of atmosphere started to creep into the band's sound, heard on Absorbed and the New Breed. 
In essence, punishment is a beacon of European thrash, a full-on assault of maniacal guitar riffs and a rhythm section about as airtight as one could find. And I think again, you know, the we talk about Tommy's guitar, but it's it's you know what Ron and and Marky are doing and holding that pocket together is is yeah. the key. And I think in a way, would you make this argument too that I think that's the key to the power trio is that rhythmic pocket? Um, totally. Cream, Jimi Hendrix experience, Rush, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm probably missing some that, that kind of stand out, but those are like the big three that kind of come to mind. But Early even <laughs> Sabbath is not a power trio, but they have that rhythmic, that geezer Bill Ward thing that just like yeah. keeps everything together. And, you know, Sabbath was always simple, so they could almost operate that way. Who else did you say? I'm sorry, I missed it. Oh, early Motorhead. When they were oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Piece. Yeah, I mean yeah. they were only four piece for a little while, right? Yeah. Um, Triumph with Word uh, Soul. Band. Yeah. They they were kind of they had the kind of power trio thing sort of going on, but um, it's just crazy that three guys are creating this much music, <laughs> you know. But like, it's just it is what it is. I mean, one, people said the same thing about Jimi Hendrix Experience. Like, how can three people just be creating so many sounds? And it's like, well, you know. When you're when on, you talk on. about uh, extreme metal. Like the easiest thing to be is an extreme metal in a in an extreme metal band is just the vocalist. Yeah, that's true. You know, you've got to be either like you've got to be the like corpse grinder has a special kind of place in the echelon of that. As you know, he, he he's like leveling things up a little bit. But most people, you know, like Ross and Immolation, like he's also playing bass. Mm-hmm. And like just being a straight up death metal singer is like mm, extreme metal singer. But I think the the whole power power trio thing in general, I think, is a very I don't there I don't know, there's something just really I think that's like the the ultimate band setup for rock, hard rock, extreme metal, um in a certain echelon of 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 sound but like something more this something more like rhythmic yeah um to where like if you've got a good enough bass player you don't have to you don't necessarily have to have a rhythm guitar player um that like like what getty lee's done in rush is like you'd never need somebody doing rhythm for lifeson yeah do a little mix of everything so yeah, and that was the same thing, you know, with Hendrix and what he's able to do, playing rhythm mm-hmm. and beat at the same time. Eddie could do the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Weed Wave Van Halen operates kind of as like a power trio because David Lee Roth's just kind of run around doing his own thing. And I think what's underrated in Van Halen is the rhythmic center, you know, that like I think so too. So much cool shit happening. You know, Eddie gets all the attention, so does Roth because they're the loudest guys, but like they hold all that fucking shit together. Otherwise it'd just be like kind of masturbatory, you know, what's the, I, I always forget the, what's the, who's the bass player for Van Halen? Michael Anthony. Yeah. Also Michael one the, Anthony also picks up all the slack for holding his, backup vocals key. Are fucking his, ba- so his backing vocals are the unsung hero of Van Halen. Yeah. I think he's one of the, the best ever, you know, yes. probably up there with like, uh, I don't know. I mean, what Harrison did to back up Paul and and uh, and John, you know, was was always mm-hmm. like kind of unsung, you know, and stuff like that. But but yeah, definitely like in like the last few decades, it's definitely been Michael Anthony, you know. So especially when you saw them come out with you know with David Lee Roth when they come back out on tour, 
Oh, yeah, and he sounds like ass. Unless yeah. Anthony is picking up the slack. Yeah. Um, that's I, again, I have nothing positive to say about Anthony's haircut or his goatee, but his yeah, uh, his, his backing vocals and bass playing are absolutely solid. He kind of reminds me of uh like uh who's who's the guy from King of Queens? He's like if Kevin James was that, <laughs> ah. that would be Michael Anthony. <laughs> he's the he's, he's probably, a UPS driver of he's probably just an okay dude, you know, like he's not that exciting, but he just he just he's going out with that. Hagar now too. Oh yeah, yeah. That's where they're that's doing. Uh, they're going to do, you know, the Hagar era, uh, yeah. Van Halen stuff. Which you know, whatever. Good for them. Cabo Wabo, man. You know, hey man, if it makes you happy. It makes you happy. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I, there's some. There's some stuff I like from Hagar, but it's not my. It's not my go-to. So, um, he's 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 my Red Rocket man. I just don't believe in his uh, his aesthetics because I you know I I just don't I can't buy I can't drive fifty five you know like I'm I'm a speed I, I, I guess it's funny actually, it's seventy five here now in Michigan that's true yeah so but I ain't um, talking about love we're talking about music you're talking about love no uh, sorry <laughs> I'm trying to turn the corner here and I just keep laughing. <laughs> So as we kind of bring things to a close here, I um, wanted to just kind of share a few kind of messages and, and sort of feedback we've gotten over over the course of the last you know couple of weeks here and there. Um, got something from a Patreon from uh, Niles. Uh, he said, recently finished Deceased and Sodom. Great characters, Tom and Kim. Uh, I enjoy the interviews a lot. And when you guys talk about the music and references, you hear everything about the records, artwork, producer, label stuff is fun. Sidetracks about wrestling can be a bit long, but maybe that's just me. Uh that's what we're here for. Sidetracks, baby. Um, anyways, amazing. Just looking so much forward to Coroner. So it's that's cool. Cool. Um, I mean, today, honestly, our biggest sidetracks we kept off mic. Mark and I just talked about like the culture of like Hollywood and movies and mass entertainment for like an right. hour. Yeah, hour talk minutes, I think. Yeah. Um <laughs> Wade Conrad said, uh, really enjoyed the deceased episode. It was awesome that you guys had King on and great to look at the earlier material. So many good stories with that guy. I look forward to an examination of Coroner, one of my favorite thrash bands uh, and bands in general. Um, got a cool uh, email from, uh, is it Neil? Neil X? Mm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he, you said he's the touring guy with Killing Joke? Was. Was. Yeah, I mean, yes. they're obviously done now, unfortunately. R.I.P. Um and he says, hi, guys, this is Neil from Killing Joke and Disgust. Uh, just wanted to say what a fucking blast I had listening to your anarcho-punk shows. Uh, that was teenage years right there. Really enjoyed them along with the typo shows. Thanks and keep it up. So that's cool. And it's always nice to hear from musicians and, and people and stuff like that. Um, Mike from Deceased, Mike Smith, said, listening now, love what you guys are doing with the Deceased episode, which was really fucking cool. It's great. Glad. And you have the actual guys liking it. Uh, very cool. Yeah. King added a little wink, uh, you know, to, to that. So he, <laughs> he was a fan. Um, John Carter said this deep dive just made me obsessed with deceased. Thank you so very much. Is that John uh, Carter from Mars or? Yes, I think that is John Carter from Mars. Perfect. So, yep. So we aim to please. And then I think there was one more I had that I was going to share. Um yeah, and then King actually wrote in. He says, uh, you know, I asked him if he had a chance to sort of listen to the episode. And he says, I did, except the last hour or so. I need to hear that. He says it was fun. Doug the Seal reference with a wink. Uh, <laughs> so, so that was good. And then he wants a copy of the the, the interview that we sort of did. 
Kiss from a Rose, buddy. Kiss from a Rose, man. I heard it. I don't know. I couldn't unhear it. And then just want to just do a shout out for a patron that we got last week. So uh, shout out to Matt Holland. We appreciate that. I know that uh, we haven't been putting out as much material, and and hopefully our patrons are you know sticking in there and 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 still liking what we're doing. And uh, obviously, as we're getting closer to the new year, Mark, you know what that means, that uh, we inevitably try to put together some kind of best of, uh, even though this year, I think we probably have listened to the least amount of new music. So it might be a shorter episode, but fuck it. Maybe we'll do a best of plus like old new shit that we've been listening to about that. Be a better bet because, yeah, when I looked at the best of list, I was like. There's a few things on decibels that I, I was really into. I'm glad that horrendous, which was my pick a couple months ago when yeah. that record came out, I felt really good about that, 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 that sort of did well Two mold did well. So there's, you know, some things on there that definitely will come up, but if you want to uh, sign up to become a patron, to support what we're doing, uh, all these sort of long work and, and research and, and stuff that we do into these episodes, we really do appreciate that. Um, you can go to, patreon.com forward slash uh, requiem podcast uh, or you can go to requiemmetal.com uh, and click on the patreon link there uh, to sign up you know five dollars a month seven dollars a month really anything is is nice we really greatly appreciate that because uh you know i spent some money i had to pick up some of these things and i know you did as well uh buying books and all the different materials hosting websites you know editing software and so yeah yeah i mean this episode i i don't know I spent probably 60 bucks. There you go. 60, yeah. 65 bucks easy. Yep. And, uh hour wise, like I don't know, but I probably put in like seven hours, eight hours into listening Research. and making Listen. notes and stuff. So so we do appreciate it. You know, I know yeah. that we do this out of love. We do this because we do it we, for free, but you know, it's yeah. it's nice to have a little bit of extra. It's nice to get feedback too. So if you want to shoot us some True. feedback, you can uh, uh, send an email to requiem uh, podcast at gmail.com. Um, or you can check us out on Facebook, uh, Mark and Jason, Jason and Mark actually, or on Twitter at podcast requiem, or just look up requiem metal podcast. I still call it Twitter. I don't know X, whatever the fuck it is. We are on Instagram. Formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. Um, Instagram uh, as well. You know, I try and post new episodes and stuff there. But um, lately, I you know I can I barely am existing as a human on a, a social level, let alone trying to run social media accounts for for the podcast as much as I want to. So yeah, apologize once a month on uh, on Instagram. So yeah, you know, so it is what it is. But uh, you know, I know that a lot of our audience are not like young, hip, uh, you know, tech savvy people as much as you know just people that enjoy what we're doing and, and Jordan Bondo is a young yes hip, and awesome wonder. person I have had a couple people reach out to me and be like hey are you guys doing new episodes and I had to kind of you know I think they were subscribing on Apple plus on Apple podcast and they, they missed the new feed information so I got them hooked up there okay okay good I think Spotify and a lot of the other hosting sites just merged but we had some trouble because I think couldn't figure out the login for the old Apple account and so we had to run a whole separate feed. So there's actually two Requiem feeds that exist on the Apple podcast system. But I think the last one stopped updating back in like the spring. You know, that's when we kind of ended that one. Yeah, I mean, that thing was going for fucking 16 years. Yeah, and it's a bummer because that's where all our comments and things are and stuff. Yeah. So I could not figure out how to get that to. I know, and I tried to run Apple, but I know you're going to find this surprising. Apple's a pretty big company, and they don't care about probably like questions like that. So I think I just no, they don't give a shit. 
Um, but yeah, so if you can leave us a, you know, um, a rating on either Spotify or Apple plus, we do, you know, we, we have a very good, uh, Spotify rating right now. Yeah, we do. We always had a good one on, on Apple as well. Yeah. We've always had five stars. You know, so we, we do appreciate that. I know some people complain about our long episodes, but fuck it. We're, we're doing what we can. So if you don't want to listen to a long episode, just don't listen to it. Just pause it. That's what I mean. Just listen to like the first talk set, take a break. If you don't like, who would not want a longer version of a, a movie or something they cared about? That's, that's that's my feeling. You know, it's not like you got to get to the end for the plot to make sense. You know, yeah. we're just, we're just we have no commercials. Yeah. You know, we do exactly what we want to do. We don't, we make a little, we don't make money on this. We recoup a little bit of money with, with the help of patrons. Yeah, we don't yeah, have yeah. any type of advertising or anything, and this is all educational-based entertainment. Yep. So uh, if it's too long, I I apologize, but go see if you can find something else any better. <laughs> for the deep dive for you. So for, for deep dive the- metal stuff, like come on, it doesn't yep. exist. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so we're gonna kind of close out with a pair of tunes here, uh, Arc Light and Skeleton on Your Shoulder, and they kind of fit together. Arc Light kind of bleeds right into Skeleton on Your Shoulder. In fact, all these songs really fit together on side A, which is uh, quite a motherfucker of a side. I think I mentioned that before, but you go from Absorbed into Mass Jackal, into Arc Light, into Skeleton on Your Shoulder, and then into Sudden Fall. So like boom, 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 just five dominoes right in a row. And uh, well, and Skeleton on Your Shoulder has. Uh some good black magic vibes from slayer yeah here's what i got with skeleton your shoulder a little bit of that a little early metal church kind of watch okay. the play lots of fucking allison and hell um you know oh, kind of, i didn't i didn't i didn't put that together a lot of you know stuff that you hear you know with that band why why am i what the fuck why can't i think of the thrash band the canadian thrash band that wrote allison and hell allison hell uh, uh I'm just drawing a complete blank here. We've, we've been recording for too long. Um, what is, I know. Isn't that crazy? So, but like the stuff that Jeff does on that record is very uh, like kind of comparable to some of the approach that like Tommy takes to sort of a guitar and things like that in terms of shredding and doing a lot of kind of technical stuff, but yet it has like a lot of like heart, you know, um, Annihilator. No, Anni- there Jesus. You. Yeah, Jeff Waters, right? Yep, Jeff Waters. And okay. so, you know, I think there's God, he's like, I was kind of a contempt. spinning my wheels there for a minute. I know, I know. So you've got, you know, you got Voivod, you got Coroner, you got Annihilator, you got early Megadeth, you know, so some of the tech thrash is like a thing. You know, you've got uh, Mekong Delta, which was, uh, I think, a German band that's doing some tech kind of thrash stuff. So no one is like Coroner, but there's bands that are kind of doing some of the same ideas. I would put Annihilator maybe in that category at times, you know, some really technical stuff that he does. But mm-hmm. uh, you can kind of hear it on Skeleton, even though Skeleton is like a little bit more straightforward songwriting. It's not there's not a lot of complexity to the song. I mean, this is solo and, and some of that stuff. But uh, compared to Arclight, man, Arclight, I mean, I think the book, you know, I think Wagner summed it up that it's it's got that kind of rush you know yyz you know uh or or you know uh why is what's the other song that i can't think of from moving pictures uh the I'm instrumental well, oh no. that no the instrumental um man we're, we're really fucking up at the end here it, we shouldn't have taken that hour-long break and talked about movies i, I know i'm just it. thinking about scorsese and de palma i can't think of anything else exactly 
But uh, yeah, but it's definitely got that kind of like, you know, reach in that it's an essential type song. Of, it's almost a centerpiece of the record. And that's rare to have that with an instrumental, especially on like a thrash, you know, uh, album outside of maybe Orion, you know, but even Orion yeah. is kind of part of a lot of big, long epic songs, too. So, um, you know, it's just it's it's awesome. And you combine this with Nosferatu on the previous record, and it's it's kind of vital to the foundation of what this these guys do. So a good way to kind of end things, I think, uh, is with Arclight and Skeleton on Your Shoulder. And then, of course, we'll be back with part two uh, in, in a few weeks uh, where we'll sort of finish up telling the story. And we kind of get into the weeds a little bit uh, because there's, you know, some controversies with their final record grin. And, and if maybe you're like myself or others that have avoided that record because you've heard bad things about it, maybe we'll uh, we'll bring Joseph Schaefer back in to see if he can kind of convince us otherwise. And so uh, we'll kind of right. see what we can come up with there. So before so we, Christmas, we'll uh, I'll have something for you. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. So, yeah, so we're going to hear one last time from Joe Schaefer here going into Arclight uh, and Skeleton on Your Shoulder from 1988's Punishment for Decadence from Coroner. So for our international thrash series, uh, Coroner and Swiss Thrash, uh, this is Jason. And I'm Mark. Skeleton on your shoulder, super fun. Uh, and the real standout, I think, on Punishment for Decadence for me, if it isn't Mass Jackal, is the instrumental, is Arclight. Um, the, the sound that Tommy gets out of his guitars on Arclight, uh, like... I don't know if you guys are going to talk about this in the episode before you talk to me, but um, Tommy was a violinist before he was a guitar player. And a lot of his like guitar fingering stuff is classical violin warmups sort of interpolated as solos. And you get a little bit of that on rip RIP rip. I like rip rip. You get a little bit of that on rip, but on arc light. Fuck. That's their YYZ mm -hmm. to me. Like, yep. uh, that's a song I put it on in my office and I have to stop typing and I have to like look at the ceiling and be like, Jesus. And you're coming so, off with such a great instrumental on RIP as well, you know, like back yeah. to back, you know, just um, incredible like instrumental pieces that are essential to the records. Whereas a lot of instrumentals, especially in thrash could sometimes be, you know, outside of Ryan or something like that. We're kind of just there as like, I don't know, bonding agents to another song. And this is not, you know, it's its own standout. Yeah. I was going to say other than Metallica, who else writes instrumentals this important yeah. to their identity? Nobody. Right. Like that's what it is to me. And if, like, obviously coroners like listening to Metallica, I, I think in their sense of melody, in the prominence of the bass, not just because they're a, they're like a three piece, but like when I hear Ron Royce's kind of slinky bass line, his like interesting little fills and stuff, I, I, I can see someone who like sees Cliff Burton. It's like I see you, buddy. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. 